Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. In this program, marijuana legalization in New Jersey, understanding the opportunity and challenges. The Murphy administration has identified legalized marijuana's potential social justice and economic impact. And despite political uncertainties, significant legalized adult use revenue is included in the governor's proposed budget. Many questions remain concerning criminal record expungement, banking infrastructure, equitable entrepreneurial opportunity, driving safety, tax and fee collection, worker safety and absenteeism, dispensary licensing, and controlling advertising to minors. In this podcast, we'll hear a keynote presentation from Andrew Friedman. He's the co-founder and senior director of the consulting firm Friedman & Kosky and the former marijuana czar of Colorado. After the keynote, NJ Spotlight's editor-in-chief, Lee Keough, will moderate a panel discussion examining legislative efforts and key debate points concerning legalized adult use of marijuana in New Jersey. The panelists are William Caruso of the law firm Archer & Griner, Diana Huenu, the Policy Counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey, Dustin McDonald, Vice President of Government Relations for Weed Maps, and Frank Greennagel from New Jersey Responsible Approaches to Marijuana Policy. Right now, let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, founding editor of NJ Spotlight, is introducing the program. Welcome, everyone, um, and, and thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm John Mooney, uh, founding editor of, of NJ Spotlight, and really excited about this session. It's um, obviously a really timely topic uh, for us. We do these roundtables around the state, and, and we've been fortunate. We, we plan them out a couple months ahead, and, and oftentimes uh, it, it's happened where these events are happening, uh, these roundtables are happening as the news is happening, and, and clearly that's the case with uh, marijuana legalization. and. Um, what I think is so important about this discussion for us is obviously there's lots of um, back and forth on the pros and cons of it, but I think it's so important to really get into the mechanics and and um, you know the steps required and, and the issues that need to be uh, discussed and and this opportunity to have folks c come up and and be in the room and talk about these things I think is really uh, the essence of what these events are supposed to be about. Before uh, we get the show going, I'm going to do a little shameless marketing. Um, NJ Spotlight this week turned eight years old. All right, we had our birthday, yeah. Uh, it's, it's been an exciting time, to say the least. Um, and and we're, we're proud of, of, of our progress and, and hope to continue and, and plan to continue ahead another eight years, if not longer. Uh, and we can't do it without you folks uh, and, and our readers and, and our members. It's, it's really critical to our existence. We are a nonprofit news site that raises uh, every penny we, um, we earn. And it's really been um, you know, really heartening to have that support from our readers and, and, and members. But I will continue to ask for it. And, and please, if you haven't already, join us, become a member. Um, and, and that comes with its own perks, but, but also it, it comes with the realization that you're helping us uh, exist and helping us continue to provide uh, news and information to the state. Um, it's easy on our site. We've got donor buttons galore uh, on our newsletter. Sign up for our newsletter. But please, it, it's really important to us to, to have that support. And we thank you all if you've, uh, as many of you have, I know a lot of friends in the room um, have already given, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, 
So let me also say for, you know, a, a key to our existence is, is gaining, um, is have, having events like this underwritten uh, with sponsors. And, and uh, we have a, three very strong sponsors on this and, and really thankful for what they've done in allowing this to happen. And I, I'm gonna introduce our business development director, Steve Shallot, to tell you a little bit about them and then we can get the show going. Steve. Good morning, everyone. I'm Steve Shallot, Business Development Director for NJ Spotlight. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and it is true that we, we need the support to provide the journalism that we do. And in part, it is um, um, underwritten by events like this with sponsors. And uh, I'd like to say a few words about today's sponsors um, who have made this event possible at this time. Uh, first being Weed Maps. Um, I've got a statement here. So uh, Weedmaps, uh, now in its 10th year, is a cloud technology company serving the cannabis industry uh, worldwide. Uh, Weedmaps helps customers find and talk and learn about uh, cannabis, but also functions as an industry platform designed specifically to power cannabis businesses and med medical institutions. The company also has a government relations and public policy arm called WM Policy, which provides research and thought leadership in the field of cannabis legislation. Uh, secondly, we'd like to thank Archer Law. So Archer is a full service regional law firm of more than 175 attorneys with a network of eight offices providing results driven legal services in a broad range of disciplines and industries. Archer's attorneys are at the forefront of marijuana legalization and are advisors to retailers, processors, growers, and ancillary businesses. Their cannabis law practice is led by industry experts who are part of the New Jersey United for Marijuana Reform Steering Committee. They're also on the board of the New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association and are part of a select group of attorneys advising the state of New Jersey on the intricacies of marijuana legalization, taxation, and regulation. And finally, we'd like to thank for sponsoring the um, event New Jersey Cannabis Industry Association themselves. Um, the association is the state's largest nonprofit trade organization dedicated to the advancing the legalization of cannabis. Uh, the NJCIA's mission is to promote sensible policies derived in part from best practices in other states to help optimize the responsible growth and development of New Jersey's cannabis industry. The NJCIA strives to promote all industry sectors, including biotechnology, cultivation, manufacturing and processing, retail dispensing, security, finance, industrial hemp, and consulting services. So thanks again to our sponsors. Um, gonna turn it back over to John and uh, we'll get the keynote going. Thank you very much. All right. I'd like to introduce Andrew Friedman, our keynote speaker. Uh, Andrew is co-founder and senior director of Friedman & Kosky, uh, a national consulting firm working with governments, research institutions, communities, and private businesses on cannabis legalization. Andrew's experience includes three years as State of Colorado's first director of marijuana coordination. And during this time, he worked on implementing voter-mandated legalized recreational and medicinal marijuana while focusing on public health, public safety, and keeping marijuana out of the hands of children. Andrew joined Colorado Governor Hickenlooper's gubernatorial campaign in 2010 and was tapped as chief of staff for Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia. In 2013, Andrew became director of 
Colorado commits to kids, the largest effort to date to overhaul Colorado's education funding system before being appointed director of marijuana coordination. We're still grappling with education funding in New Jersey, so you're, we're gonna have you back to talk on that. Um, um, he was recognized as one of Fast Company's 100 most creative people in business in 2016 and featured in 60 Minutes, Nightly News, Today Show, New York Times, and now NJ Spotlight. Um, I'd like to introduce a Andrew, uh, I think it's it's really critical to, to hear voices from outside of New Jersey um, and, and the experiences and the lessons they've had. And, and Andrew is uh, the, the perfect choice for that. So I'd like to an introduce Andrew to say a few words. Thank you. OK, I'm on lapel, but I'm going to stand behind here for a little bit. I'll step out. In a, uh, little ways from there. Uh, I'm going to start, uh, and they didn't ask me to do this, but I'm going to start with my own little pitch for NJ Spotlight. Uh, and a, a special thank you to John and Lee and, uh, and Steve for putting this together. Um, uh, my firm, Friedman and Kosky, um, and the, for the disclosure part of this, um, Friedman and Kosky is a consulting firm. We mainly work directly for governments. We do work for ancillary businesses uh, related to marijuana, but we don't take marijuana licensee money, and that's so that we're not in conflict when we have government contracts that we're both helping create the regulated system, but also have people within the regulated system. Uh, I will tell you that that work has brought us across the country. We're now working with California, Florida, Ohio, uh, hopefully New Jersey at some point, Massachusetts. Um, and I will tell you there is a distinct difference between the quality of legislation and implementation uh, for a community that has an engaged uh, system of journalists and ones that don't. And I, if you're not familiar with what's going on in Denver right now, uh, a, a, a hedge fund is eating alive our, our only source of local news, the Denver Post, uh, and it is having an absolute impact on uh, what's going on within the legislature. So uh, I want to be particularly thankful for NJ Spotlight and the, the work they do here to create a, a better world for New, for New Jersey. And I know that sponsored events are one of the now alternative sources of revenue that really keep these things going. So please, please, please find a way to not only keep these sort of uh, events going, but finding diverse ways of bringing in money so that they can maintain uh, journalistic integrity throughout. And so that is my own pitch for New Jersey Spotlight, not sponsored. Um, I guess slightly sponsored. Uh, so I was, I, as introduced, uh, I was, uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, and then I became Lieutenant Governor's Chief of Staff. I always say my mom was really proud. She told everybody uh, that I was Lieutenant Governor's Chief of Staff, and then when I came, became the world's first marijuana czar, she started telling everybody that I was the Lieutenant Governor's Chief of Staff. And so, um, that's just a way of saying that everybody, that, that this is a conversation everywhere, and it, there's a culture shift going, going through it. Um, this debate gets conflated a lot. Uh, this is, one of the most difficult conversations to have from a good government standpoint because um, the question of should you legalize and how you legalize are happening at the same time. And, they get, and that means that the data being talked about gets really conflated between the things. And it becomes really difficult to see what the actual problems are should you go through with legalization that you should create your legislation around uh, in order to be uh, aware of that. And so. I'm, I'm first going to start off with data from Colorado. The reason I throw up this map is um, legalization is kind of happening everywhere right now. And you would think that because it's happening everywhere, we have tons of great data. Uh, and I will tell you, we don't really have any data at all. Um, and I'm going to go through all the data that, I, that we know of from Colorado and tell you what, what we think is uh, something you can kind of hang your hat on and what's actually pretty bad data right now. Uh, and it's really from the, the standpoint not of should you legalized marijuana, 
but assuming you legalize marijuana, here's what you should know. Uh, and I think that's a good lens to think about it. To, so kind of whatever hat you came in with today of I'm pro or anti whatever uh, legislation might go through, I do ask you for the speech that you take that hat off and just assume that legalization is coming, which I got to tell you is probably a pretty fair assumption. Uh, even if it's not this session, uh, there, there is a huge public sentiment shift towards legalization. Uh, and it's happening much faster than I think all of us agnostics thought it would happen. And so please, please keep that in mind. Uh, that that I'm not here to promote or to uh, discourage legalization. I'm just here to talk about when it happens. Here's what it looks like, uh, and and please create an architecture that that's that's aware of that. And so, um, if we go to the first slide, um, every talk about legalization um, that is not the first slide. Oh. That's the next slide. That, one? that is the well. I put the bat wrong first slide, but that's the first slide. Um, Every talk about legalization uh, in every uh, jurisdiction is always first to talk about children. And I think there, there's a lot of uh, nervousness around what happens with youth use when we start uh, legalization. Um, uh, I'm going to share with you a couple of different data streams that we have on this. And I would say it's the exhaustive use of data streams that we have. So far, to cut to the chase, we have not seen any statistical evidence of an increase in youth use. There's one piece of statistical evidence of a decrease in youth use. Uh, I will say it's not the best data sources ever, but it's the best we have. And so really the, the only way to know how many youth are using sort of uh, requiring uh, your analysis uh, is to uh, ask them. And so the question is, do they lie? Uh, and then the answer is yes. Uh, but we do at some points validate these studies. I think the last time done on both of these was in 2011, uh, where you come in and you actually do uh, uh, both ask them and then test them uh, test their, their urine uh, in order to validate how many people are telling the truth or not telling the truth. So uh, we, are, we assume that they are lying at the same rate over time, uh, but this is nonetheless kind of the best trend data that we have. And so this is, I know it's going to be kind of hard to see, but the top lines are, um, have you ever used marijuana? And the bottom lines are, have you used marijuana in the last 30 days? And the general story in Colorado is that high schoolers uh, are roughly using marijuana the same way that you've used marijuana since 2005, uh, which is about one in five co uh, Colorado high school students use marijuana on a monthly basis, and four out of five don't. Uh, this is our own internal survey that we do. That's called the Healthy Kids Colorado Survey that lines up with other state-run surveys. If we go to the next one. This is the national survey. This is the one that the federal government administers. Um, and it's a much smaller sample size, but they go and they do all the phone calls across uh, the United States. And this is 12 to 17 year olds, so the, the, it's not high schoolers. The number's slightly different. This is the one that if you've been wondering what, what is the story behind youth use in Colorado, and I get these massively different reports, this is, this is the chart that you have to blame for that. So anytime you hear in the future, and there's something called the Rocky Mountain High Intensity Drug Trafficking Report that will say there was a 20% increase in youth use, this is the chart they're referring to. Uh, there are advocates for legalization who said that there's been a decrease since uh, legalization. This is the chart they're referring to. So literally, it's always the same data. Uh, and I, I can show you why that is. That, uh, so I, I mean, I was, just, I was just testifying in front of um, uh, uh, the Senate committee in Canada, who, who's also going through the, almost the exact same process you guys are. Um, and one person, their start date was 2006, and they say, well, between 2005, 2006, 
and 2015-2016, which is the last year we have this data, there's been an increase. Uh, it's not statistically significant, but there has been an increase. Um, the other person would say, well, 2013-2014 is when Colorado legalized marijuana, uh, and there's been a decrease. Uh, I, I suppose you can, you, you can do whatever you want to do uh, with what date you want to start with there. I would say I look at this chart, and there's no clear trend. Uh, and I would say most public health officials that look at that would say the, there's mainly good news in here in that there, there has not been a statistically significant trend difference between uh, pre-legalization and post-legalization. Next slide, please. The other way to look at it is, uh, and this is the, again, now this is the only other real data stream we have, is drug-related drug suspensions. Um, I will say I don't gather anything from this chart, um, but it's going to be more information that's, that's thrown your way. Um, so the top line, the blue line, is drug suspension rate. The bottom line is total suspension rate. Um, we were uh, nervous when we first started uh, through recreational legalization because when we went through the commercialization of medicinal marijuana, we did see an, up, an increase in drug-related suspensions, even as we were seeing a decrease in total suspensions across Colorado. So we thought we would see something similar. We've actually not seen anything, a, a basic flatline trend line for drug-related suspension since legalization, uh, even as total suspensions have, all, has, have also evened out. So all of that is to say, um, that's, I wouldn't gra gather anything from those trend lines, and it becomes even more complicated because uh, if you go to the next slide, we just recently started pulling out marijuana-related suspensions, different than, than drug-related suspensions. And I always just assumed, and I guess this is me being a teetotaler, that, that uh, like 95% of drug-related suspensions in high schools were, were marijuana-related. Uh, well, it's about um, 60%. And so that really, in, unless you pull that out right now, uh, which I do suggest to states that they start pulling out marijuana-related data uh, in many different places, not least of which is school suspension rates. Um, unless you, you're already pulling that out, it means you have no baseline. Once it's only 60% of the data uh, that's coming in, uh, you have no way of determining whether or not an increase or a decrease is due to marijuana-related suspensions or other drugs. Uh, and so, uh, frankly, I would say, and again, uh, it's because this information is going to be thrown at you. Frankly, I would say that that. Uh, uh, High school suspension rates are not a great indicator of changes that you might be seeing on the ground due to legalization. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, adults. Um, uh, here the trend lines are, are a lot clearer, uh, particularly 18 to 25-year-olds. I, I don't think it's a, uh, a secret that uh, people in Colorado really like marijuana. And they've really liked marijuana for a, a really long time. Uh, and they, they like it more and more over time. Uh, one of the th problems probably with these surveys is um, you, are, you are now calling people and it's no longer a crime. So before, the federal government would call you and say, are you using marijuana? And it's, a, it's a, at least a state level crime. The, there might have been a higher uh, rate of lying before legalization than after. That's totally unprove, unproven. But that is a pretty consistent trend line that we are seeing more and more past month use for 18 to 25 year olds. And if you go to the next slide, Less clear trend line, but uh, still some, some clear trend that 26 and over also over time are starting to use marijuana more in the past 30 days. Two things to say about this. Um, the first is um, uh, that, again, uh, these aren't huge number differences, and we don't know if they're substituting use or complementing use with alcohol and tobacco. Uh, and so we can't really give you a full public health picture with that. And the second is, 
30-day use is actually a really bad standard, especially when you're no longer talking about youth. Uh, and it's actually the only thing we have in this. But what I want to know is about heavy users. And I want to know, uh, is the rate of heavy users changing? Is how much heavy users are using? Is that changing? And we frankly have no information on that. I would say probably the industry has a lot better information than we do about how, the, the, how heavy users are changing, what the habits of heavy users are. I don't care if somebody from a public health point of view has used in the last 30 days if it's state legal and they're not driving. Um, but um, if they're using every day and they're losing their job, that's something as a public health official that we should be looking at. So next slide, please. So to get into specific problems we've seen since legalization, like acute problems that have, that have popped up over time, the first one I think you'll always hear about is people showing up in the hospital rooms and people uh, causing, calling poison control. And that is happening. Uh, and you see uh, a very specific uptake uh, in 2014. Uh, we started to have more calls across the spectrum uh, for, um, uh, for uh, at poison control center calls. Poison control center calls are by far the best data source to look at here and not hospitalization rates because doctors will admit that they now more freely ask about marijuana use than they did before. And so they might, they're more likely to code in for marijuana use. But poison control center calls you opt into. Uh, and so this is very good data, uh, uh, frankly. And the more you mine this data, the better data you're going to have. Um, what this, and I'll, I can get into this more later, edibles have essentially three problems to them. Uh, one is uh, over, over ingestion, uh, over consumption. Two is accidental ingestion. Uh, and three is that it's they, they can be attractive to youth, all of which I think there are regulations you can put around to really help. And I, I would turn to Colorado for some good model uh, uh, legislation there. But uh, what I would say is when we dig down into this data, what, what you're actually seeing is naive users using new products. Uh, and having a bad experience. Uh, and th those are the people that are calling. If you go to the, the next slide, here's the good news about it, and I always want to put this in relation. At its peak, that was 230 calls in one year in Colorado, where there was about 6,600 calls for alcohol poisoning for the same amount of time. And so I always want to put this stuff in relation that, um, that first, when you see the first one, you'll see a, what looks like a massive increase. When you put it into scale, Maybe not such a big deal. And I will tell you, uh, since we've enacted public education campaigns and uh, better regulations about intuitive dosing with edibles, that number started to come down. I think the last time I saw that number, it was in the high 100s. And so um, it isn't something that's not overcomable. It's also, there's no real long-term impact to this, um, to having a really bad uh, time with edibles, other than that night, when you're having that bad day, uh, you can be a danger to yourself and, and those around you. Next slide, please. This is probably the most concerning uh, uh, data uh, trend that I've seen. Um, this is people involved. So to say a few things about driving while high, you're going to, again, see a lot of information about people about how driving while high, what are called DUIDs, have gone up a lot in states with legalization. But every state that has legalized marijuana has changed their driving while high laws to be a lot clearer. And then they've used marijuana tax revenue to train law enforcement officials to better be able to spot driving while high. So you would hope that those numbers go up because they're, they're doing a better job of catching them. And, and that is true. So driving while high numbers, uh, are, are the data is way too messy. I would not look at it. You, it, does, it will not give you a good uh, trend line of what's happened in legalization states. This is a different data source. This is called the Fatal Accident Reporting System. Uh, that 
uh, has not really changed over time. That is, when somebody's involved in a fatal accident, either through coroner's report or through on-site toxicology tests, there's a number of screens given to them. Uh, in about 85% of the cases, they are screened for marijuana, and that hasn't really changed pre or post legalization. So these are good trend lines to look at. Uh, and this will so, um, with both inactive and active THC, so meaning THC that stays in your uh, fat cells uh, um, over time, um, that number has gone up of uh, drivers involved in fatal accidents. Probably the better one to look at is with active THC. Uh, active THC will, will disappear somewhere between three to five hours after using uh, marijuana, and so this is a much better test of whether or not somebody recently used marijuana before they, they drove. Uh, that's gone up, and it's gone up not only in a raw number, but it's gone up in a percentage, uh, as a percentage. And so I do think there's a problem here. Um, what's interesting, and, and the Rand Institute has done this analysis, um, Colorado is frankly no, uh, no less safe to drive in than it was pre-legalization. So as a whole, we have not really seen an impact on our top line rates for fa fatality compared to other states around us uh, or compared nationally. So per 100,000 miles driven in Colorado, we have like 1.4 deaths. Um, per per 100,000 miles driven in Arizona, it's like 1.6. And uh, that's a very, uh, I, um, those populations and uh, geography are very similar. Um, and so I don't really know what to tell you here. I don't know if there's a new problem or if it's just that problematic drivers are either driving while high or driving while drunk or driving while drunk and high uh, and that we have more of a, a problematic set of people so that, that marijuana isn't creating a new problem. It's just uh, a different problem on the same problematic set or whether or not this is a trend line that we really need to watch out for over the future. I will say, um, when, we do, when we do research studies on the front end, people think they're safe when they're driving while high. Uh, and uh, I think that's a dangerous message to have out there and, and figuring out a public education campaign that convince, convinces people otherwise uh, is important going forward. Next slide. Here's some good news. Uh, we arrest a lot fewer people for marijuana. Uh, I think you would expect that and when you legalize, but you know, I think there was also this, this view that, hey, it was already decriminalized in Colorado, and, uh, and so why would you see a decrease in legalization? Well, decriminalization still has a lot of things that are criminal in it, and you, you have seen a dramatic increase that, that's since legalization in 2012, uh, a dramatic decrease in, in marijuana-related uh, arrests. Uh, the, the caveat on that on the next slide is that it's not been across the board, uh, and that's, uh, well, there has been a decrease across the board, uh, but the percentage decrease across the board uh, has not been, uh, I think, what a lot of people would hope it would be, uh, and that is that the, the decrease was the greatest for Caucasians, uh, and it was less for African Americans and less for Hispanics. Uh, we were very concerned one year because we actually saw it start to tick back up uh, in 2014 for both uh, the Hispanic population and the African American population. Um, uh, there's very little ways on the state level to, uh, to have any policies that, that counteract that other than just putting out the data. And I will say, I think that did something because um, Denver Post ran with the data, everybody ran with this data saying what is going on, and we saw an immediate aftermath in 2015 of all those arrest levels going back down. Uh, if you go to the next slide, we also saw that with youth. 
So again, something weird happened in 2014. We were starting to arrest more 10 to 17-year-olds than we did before legalization. And I think people were very upset about that because we didn't want to be arresting anybody for marijuana. So in particular, arresting more youth for marijuana was something that nobody wanted to see. And so then you have now seen a drop in those arrest rates. Next. All right, tax revenue. Um, uh, there's a lot of tax revenue here, uh, and, and it's, uh, it goes up over time. So uh, this is a good way of kind of looking at how quickly you can see um, the uh, black market disappearing, because this is a convergence market, right? Like essentially every dollar coming in uh, this way is probably money coming out of the black market. There might be a little increase in usage, but, but for the most part, every dollar in is a dollar out of the black market. Um, and this is on the tax revenue side. Um, uh, this is about the highest we've expe we would expect it to come in. It might come in a little bit higher, uh, but I also think you're going to see the price of marijuana dropping pretty fast. And so um, even if this bumps a little higher right now, it'll come down over time. What I always have to mention uh, is that's a great number and that's new revenue and that's a, that there's a lot of really good things it can go to. Uh, that will not pave your roads and that will not pay your teachers. Uh, Colorado has a $34 billion budget, $250 million there, there is still less than 1% of our budget. So the big ticket items that take up 15, 20, 30% of your budget, this is not a good place to put that money. Uh, and I will tell you it's even a little bit worse for that. And, and I think this is one of the lessons learned in Colorado is we put it into school construction. We put uh, a dedicated 40 million into school construction. Uh, and um, I think that's great. I think that that's you know four to five roofs in a rural, uh, part of the, the country or the state, everybody thinks we solved education with this money. Uh, and that perception's a problem because then you go and try to raise your local taxes to go to education. And as, as, as has been mentioned, I've been trying to raise taxes for education for a while. And everybody says, well, what happened? I've seen these huge numbers coming in for marijuana. Uh, how, how, are, how do we not have a school gym? And so, well, this is not enough money to, to bring you a school gym. Um, my recommendation for where this money goes is into projects that don't typically get state-level funding that will have a huge impact on society. My own pet project would be uh, veterans and single mother homelessness. You could actually completely solve uh, in Colorado with discretionary funds after you've paid for your regulatory system, after you've paid for youth prevention programs and public education campaigns, you could completely solve veteran homelessness and single mother homelessness uh, with marijuana funding. So that would be, in, in my mind, a very good use of the money. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, our Constitution still puts it directly into education. And I think it's always hard to convince people to put money into those places when they say, I want to use every dollar to, to pave our roads. Uh, and then again, you have to go back and you say, OK, that's 14 miles on the highway in Colorado. Um, and if you want to put every dollar into it, it's 14 miles. And so uh, again, I think people get a little bit uh, out of sorts with the sort of context that that, that can be in. Next slide. Uh, as far as actual market size, uh, it, it's big. Uh, it's, it's roughly 1% to 3% of Colorado's economy. Um, I say 1% to 3 depending on the multiplier. That's 1% if you put no multiplier on it, but since obviously there are ancillary businesses that, that come in for it, uh, it could be up to 3% of the economy. Uh, 1.3 million industry specific. Uh, in relation, uh, craft brewing is about 1.1%. Uh, million do uh, billion dollars uh, for Colorado. They're very similar industries because you do look towards craft brewing to be local uh, and, and marijuana is local because otherwise it's illegal. Uh, and so uh, that's about the size of the market that we see in Colorado. Next slide. All right, some important issues. I'm going to do a little time check. I have about 20 minutes to talk through uh, 
uh, important issues uh, that I think you guys should be looking at when you go through this in, in dynamics. Um, and then I will leave you with questions on the other side. Uh, naive users. So uh, I talk, I, by far, the, 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 the most useful um, policy tool you have is public education campaigns. Um, it is uh, very clear that people want to be safe, they want to do this correctly, um, that, that uh, there are messages that get through to youth. Um, the, the more and more you have uh, good public education campaigns on the front end, uh, the more you'll be able to uh, prevent most of the, the problems that you might see coming up. I will say naive users, the reason I throw naive users up there is because um, a lot of people, and this might come as a shock, have been using marijuana for a long time. Uh, and, and it's been widely available. Uh, and they know the impact it has on your body. Um, uh, the, the edible example to always point to is Maureen Dowd comes into town uh, and she, she uh, even though the package says that it's six doses of marijuana, she eats the entire thing and then she writes a column about it. Um, uh, have it, has anybody read that column? Oh, that's funny. That was like my first month on the job. She called me and uh, uh, I, I had no communications background so I freaked out that the New York Times was call, calling at all. Um, but she called me and she said, you know, I was, I was just in Colorado uh, and I wasn't going to mention this but it's starting to become more and more stories but like I went and got an edible and I ate the whole thing and then I had to go meet with the governor and I was really high. And I was like, I don't know what to do about that. So uh, if you read that whole article, I'm like the last paragraph in there. And I was like, nobody's reading that article about me. Everybody's reading about how Marine Dowd got really high. Um, uh, so, so she was a naive user. Uh, and it's an edible, and edibles look attractive, and uh, most people don't stop at uh, one little part of the edible. And so what we learned, which might not seem like rocket science, but certainly in the medical market, we could have six doses per product, and it could be, you know, like a, a Reese's peanut butter cup, and they would eat, eat the Reese's peanut butter cup, and they would know the effect it would have. Well, in, in this uh, new market, uh, you better make the dose pretty intuitive. So you should score and demarket and make it clear when you're having one dose of marijuana, because otherwise somebody's going to eat the whole peanut butter cup. And, uh, um, and so now you can't have a peanut butter cup with six doses in it in the recreational market unless you found a way to, to score it, put a universal symbol stamped on every one of them, uh, and, and uh, move forward in that way. I'll say the accidental ingestion part is a problem here as well, because um, uh, say uh, you're in a hotel room, you're a tourist, you've come in, you've bought edibles, you've had a bad night, you leave the rest of your edibles in the hotel room, well the cleaning help comes through uh, and uh, may not speak English and they pick it up uh, and they actually take it home and, and they eat it. And that actually, actually has happened quite a few times in Colorado uh, to uh, um, emergency room calls, right, because they didn't know it was an adulterated product. And so. Uh, Stamping individually on the edible itself with a caution symbol, something that does not require language, uh, English language, um, uh, and then putting out a public education campaign uh, is important. Again, all different ways of reaching naive users quickly. Uh, a quick word on public education campaigns for youth. Uh, there are great messages to get to youth on, on uh, education. Government is particularly bad at utilizing those messages. And so uh, anybody in PR will tell you the most important thing is credibility. Well, I will tell you government has no credibility when it comes to talking to youth about marijuana. Uh, and that is something we lost sight of a little bit in Colorado when we went out with our first campaign. Um, there was a lot of 
nervousness about going forward with the recreational campaign. And so our first campaign was called Don't Be a Lab Rat. Uh, and on its face, we actually thought that it was reasonable, right? That uh, what we were saying is, hey, the science is still early, but it's not good on what this does to youth brains. And do you really want to sacrifice your brain uh, towards science uh, and, and to prove that it does cause an IQ loss or, or, or other problems? Um, uh, we put up giant lab rat cages throughout Colorado. Um, it did not go well. Uh, uh, the Denver Post said, like, hey, this is a good counterbalance against the industry, which will say that there's no public health effects of marijuana, uh, uh, a negative public health effects of marijuana, and that it's a medicine. Uh, and now this is to say that there's a counterbalance. They're like, the lab rat cages might be heavy-handed. We'll see how that goes. Well, the lab rat cages were heavy-handed. And I think what we had lost sight of uh, is that we're the government talking about this stuff. And so no matter what tone we think we're taking on, the tone we have towards children is fear-mongering. And so uh, anytime we come across as fear-mongers, uh, they immediately dismiss what we're saying, and they go to uh, the internet, and they look up whatever they want to look up, and then uh, we, we lose that, that debate. And so what I would say is uh, our second approach was uh, to, to do a lot more both focus group testing on the front end of our uh, messaging, but also after we'd actually created the ads, we went and back and tested it with youth again to make sure that whatever message tone we thought we were throwing out was not the tone that they were hearing. Uh, and we now do Protect What's Next, which is much more about uh, engaging uh, youth about what their immediate goals are, uh, getting a driver's uh, license, uh, getting your first job, getting a date to prom, getting a good grade, uh, and asking them, simply asking them, do you think marijuana will help you get there? Uh, and the answer for them, even as perception of risk of marijuana goes down, they all believe that that, that is true, that marijuana will not help them achieve those goals. Uh, and our, our pre and post tests on them are pretty great, uh, that uh, kids are less likely to use marijuana when they think about what their goals are and uh, what the next steps to uh, achieve those goals are. And so uh, that's what worked in Colorado. I'm not saying that that might work, will or will not work in New Jersey, but I'm saying um, whatever you might think is a good message towards children uh, is probably not a good message towards children. Uh, and that's the other hard part of it, is you get legislators coming up to you and say, well, why don't you just tell them it's not legal until 21, so wait till then. Like, it's just that simple. And you're like, because that literally, we've tested that message and it makes them more likely to use it. And so, um, uh, but adults have been writing youth prevention campaigns forever and we haven't tested ourselves ahead of time. Uh, and we always think we know what's best and, and it turns out we're very wrong about that. Um, other thing you're gonna hear a lot about and there's, there's dynamics to consider when legislating on this is the, is the black market. And you will hear Colorado's black market increased so much after legalization or Colorado's black market decreased uh, post-legalization. And if you wonder which one is correct, they're both kind of correct and I'll tell you why. Um, the internal black market as I showed you with the regulated marijuana. So um, uh, regulated marijuana uh, means that you're a licensee in order to grow it. Uh, in Colorado we requ require seed to sale tracking which is actually a radio frequency identifier tag on every single individual plant from the time it's six inches tall moving forward all the way to sale. Uh, and the exact reason for that is we want to make sure it's not diverted out of the system. It's also a great source of data for us, but the exact reason is we want to be able to stop any part, part of an inventory, whether it's somebody shipping it from point A to point B, whether it's the grow itself, whether it's the retail store, and saying, let's see how much marijuana you have on hand right now, how much you report having on hand. Those two numbers better align or you're pushing it out somewhere. 
uh, and every once in a while we find somebody who's pushing it out somewhere and we take away their license. And, uh, and so there's a very little leakage out of the regulated system. And so every dollar going into the regulated system is a dollar coming out of the black market. And our demand report, so we go out and we do a demand report and say how much marijuana about does Colorado in general need? And it's about 120 tons of marijuana a year, which is astounding to me. Uh, um, and I would guess somewhere between 100 and 110 uh, tons of marijuana is right now going through the regulated system. Uh, uh, and so we are quickly converging on, a, uh, on a, uh, a model where we are entirely taking over the black market inside Colorado. Unfortunately, there's a lot of demand for marijuana outside of Colorado, and we had really porous and poorly written home grow laws in our constitution. Uh, you could very easily grow 99 plants at home. Uh, and, uh, for medical purposes, and you could grow six plants for recreational purposes, but you could also help other people grow their six plants so people would show up, get 100 signatures, uh, and claim that they were growing everybody's recreational plants, and suddenly you could grow 1,000 plants in your home uh, for uh, technically under the guise of the law. And surprise, surprise, people were doing that. Uh, and they were doing it in rural areas, and they were doing it as part of organized crime, and they were doing it for the purposes of shipping it out of the state, where in-state in marijuana might go for about $1,000 a pound. Out of state, you could get up to $3,000 a pound. So there was a, a very big economic incentive. And you were seeing, really, cartel action come through, abusing home grow laws for the purposes of out-of-state diversion. And I would say, this, I always called that my white whale. It was the single biggest problem that we had. Uh, and there was a lot of um, well-intentioned uh, well caregivers who were giving a product to a kid with cancer or a kid with epilepsy uh, that were growing at home and did not trust the regulated system to do it. And they would show up to the legislature and say, no, 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 I need 99 plants. And I would show up on the other side and say, this is a huge gaping hole in our system uh, and it's being abused by cartels. Eventually, the legislature did see this, and they saw a home started to be ruined, and they did see that this was happening in daylight. So now you can only grow 12 plants in your home in Colorado, regardless of the reason that you, that you have for it. We also put money into uh, black market uh, crackdowns. And so uh, word is, and, and it'll take a little while for this to come out in data, but I think this is a problem that we've, for the most part, fixed in Colorado uh, and will get better over time. But there was a long time where, where we did have a black market problem of home grows being used for out-of-state diversion. Uh, social equity, um, let me get, um, social equity, I would say we fell pretty short on social equity in Colorado. Um, uh, it's a conversation that got lost pretty much right, right at the beginning. And in some ways, you, you, it, it's, uh, you can give yourself a little bit of a pass that, hey, we were being asked to be the first people to get up and running with a regulated system. We were very concerned about what licensing needs to look like, what seed to sale uh, tracking needs to look like. Uh, the business of actually getting up and running with a regulated system is really difficult in itself. Uh, but there were promises, that not that we made, but that I think people, when they were voting for marijuana and to end the war on drugs, that they thought that they would see a lot more going back to communities uh, historically hurt by uh, the war on drugs. Um, I would say both, you know, again, uh, there were fewer arrests in the African-American and Hispanic communities. There were just fewer, fewer arrests than there were in the Caucasian community. Um, economic development, and data is actually really hard on this, but the best data we have shows that in general it's rich white guys that own marijuana stores. Um, and that makes sense a little bit economically that uh, there's high barriers to entry uh, so access, and there's no access to legitimate capital because uh, there's a banking problem that I'm happy to go into. Um, uh, that it, it's hard, I do one joke, we'll see how it goes. It's not an unbanked industry, it's an underbanked industry. 
It's a half-banked industry. Uh, so um, uh, that did mean that it was harder for um, minority communities uh, to, uh, to become owners. Uh, and we are seeing the start of social equity programs in places like Oakland and LA, and we'll see how those work out. I have a particular view of this, which is it's going to be really difficult and maybe counterproductive to try to socially engineer um, uh, a diversification of owners on the state level for this. Uh, but it, it is a, a very real concern. So we have $250 million in tax revenue. Uh, we should probably start talking about that going to small business loans to minority communities for the purposes of marijuana uh, ownership if they want or whatever ownership of, what, uh, of whatever uh, business that they would want to go forward with uh, and start to talk about social equity as a little broader than that. And then the other part of that being, uh, you know, uh, this is a good pot of money, again, for diversion programs that don't often get a lot of money. Uh, and so you can also start to talk about, for criminal justice, uh, just broad diversion programs and better ways out of uh, the criminal justice system. And so uh, I would urge you not to try to too to not, not to try to use the legislation to kind of create these scalpels of like, here's how we're going to make this a, a more uh, diverse um, ownership structure. Because I think in the long run, the economics are going to run against you. This is an agricultural product. It's an agricultural commodity. Profit margins are going to drop like a rock uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, it's going to be people who can reach, uh, reach uh, uh, economies of scale the fastest that are going to be uh, the people that win. And so you might be able to give a leg up right at the beginning towards a minority community, but if somebody has more access to capital, they're going to beat them out. And then you've asked them to put up their life savings in order to get into the system uh, only to get kicked out. And so I, I, I think there are better ways to have the discussion about social equity than simply trying to figure out how to socially engineer the licensing structure. Uh, the final problem that I'll talk about, people ask me how it's going, and I, and I always say, you know, a lot, the sky hasn't fallen is the, the thing you'll hear the most, the most frequently in Colorado. And I believe that is true. I have not seen any data that shows me, especially on the top line level, look, Colorado is a wonderful place to live. Uh, U.S. News and World Report just rated Denver the number one uh, city in the country to move to. That's a huge uh, um, uh, concentration of marijuana stores there. I'm not saying it's because of marijuana legalization. I'm just saying marijuana legal legalization, some people do say it's because of that. And I, that's fine. They can make, uh, I'm just saying, uh, if you're looking at top line data in Colorado, everything from public health and public safety statistics uh, to the economy, we're doing quite well in, in Colorado. Uh, we have problems that go up because we have grow growing cities. We have problems that go down because, uh, uh, because we have resources to put to them. But in general, you will not find any statistical outliers in Colorado compared to any other place. But if I'm 10 years down the road talking about what happened, the, the, the battle we probably need to win the most uh, is the 80-20 problem with marijuana that exists for tobacco, exists for alcohol. And that is the market for marijuana is 20% of the users use 80% of the product. Uh, same exists for alcohol, same exists for tobacco. And right now, what we have is a convergent market. We have black market use coming in and, and being used in the regulated market. Uh, but at some point, we're going to tap out that market. At some point, uh, there will be enough marijuana grown and sold that every dollar put it, that would have been put in into the black market, for the most part, will come out of the regulated market. And, so, and then I believe you'll have much fewer actors. Every, the, the grows will have consolidated. And so if you're entrepreneurial and you're in a grow, you say, how do we continue to, to grow our profit share? Uh, I can put out advertising that beats uh, my competitor, and I can also grow the market. And that's what happened in the 1950s and 60s with tobacco, which is how do we grow that 20%? We either make them use more 
or we make them use at a younger age. Uh, and those were the two uh, marketing dynamics that we saw at play for tobacco. Uh, and then we had to create the FDA, or we had to give the FDA the power in order to, to fight back on that. And actually, youth use of tobacco and alcohol are now at unbelievable historic lows. They can still go lower, but um, uh, those seem to have won. And so I would say putting up the guardrails right now to prevent that sort of market dynamic down the, down the road uh, where people are trying to grow the use of uh, people at 20% uh, is probably the most important dynamic. And getting that in right now before industry is trying to do that, uh, because industry's not, doesn't, industry again is busy grabbing black market share right now. Um, getting that done early and correctly and learning the lessons that we learned from tobacco uh, is, an, is probably the most important intermediate step right now and, and one that uh, will change the way, if I was to get up here five years from now and say how things are going, 10 years from now, uh, how we dealt with this 80-20 problem would probably be the most important. So with that, I look forward to questions. Are we doing a few brief questions right now? Uh, I'm not going to direct this. Somebody else will. We have time for a few questions, um, just a couple. And I'd like to stress this is for questions for Andrew as opposed to comments. We're going to have lots of discussion going on. Um, but anybody? Right here. Hold on. If you don't mind introducing yourself. Hello. Hello. Yes. My name is Cheryl Kennedy. I'm a physician. I work at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. That's not why I'm here. I'm not representing Rutgers. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I have two questions about, first of all, the social issue, social equity. Uh, one is, how did Colorado address uh, the issue of people that are currently convicted and serving sentences for marijuana offenses? And then the other issue is your comparison to the tobacco industry. I appreciate that. I wondered, how did the FDA figure in that? They refuse to regulate tobacco as a drug. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered what your connection there was. Thank you. Great. Two great questions. Um, uh, currently convicted, um, uh, again, it's a place where I think there are good lessons learned from Colorado, which is uh, we didn't do anything with currently convicted. And we tried to pass legislation that got killed in the House on it. Um, uh, um, certain Denver DA went through an expungement process. There, there were. Um, uh, there were processes. California just went ahead and it, wrote it into their proposition uh, that you can get expunged for it. Uh, but then there's actually, and, and what the specific language says is, if this would have been legal under the new, uh, under the new laws, then, it, it, then you, sh you can be expunged for it. The thing that is, that's actually a fairly expensive process. And so um, ambitious DAs here, and this is something that I would suggest, just allow it have a very simple opt-in, and they just do it for you. Uh, and um, there's kind of no reason not to do that. Uh, I have seen very little downside of it in places that have done it. I've checked up with DAs who've gone through this process, and they say it's fairly, uh, it's not even all that time consuming. It's fairly easy to do. Uh, they, you, can, you can depict, you can, you can go back and say like, hey, was this actually pled down from like a murder charge to marijuana possession, in which case we should probably think twice. Those, those things are fairly easy to do. So I don't know why it's not happening other than this is still a politically volatile issue. The second on tobacco, uh, I would say advertising is probably the best part of it to crosswalk. Um, there, is, there is both a lot of good legislation on advertising, there's a lot of good FDA practices on advertising, and then the settlements agreements themselves between the tobacco industry and the FDA uh, are, are uh, pretty high level. In, the FDA in or the attorneys general? It, it's both. It, they, they're working together, um, put it through. 
Question on oh, sorry. Yep. Hi, good morning. My name is Michael Smolensky. I have a private law practice. My question, I actually have two questions for you. The first one is, how has this experience with marijuana affected the use of other illegal substances in your state? Yep. And the second question, somewhat unrelated to that, do you have any information about <clears throat> how law enforcement in other states have interacted with motorists passing through from Colorado because law enforcement would see them identify Colorado as a source state for marijuana in yep. a state where it is not legal? Yep. Uh, for the first question about, uh, it's, it's essentially the substitute complement question in general. So does, this, does marijuana serve as a substitute or a complement for alcohol, tobacco, illicit drugs, and opioids uh, is a huge open question still. And the answer is we don't really know and we don't really know what the dynamic of, legal, of recreational legalization has on any of those. There is a good study that, ha that is like it was in uh, the the Journal of American Medicine, I mean a double-blind, I'm not a double-blind, but a, a peer-reviewed uh, study that did sh say that uh, in states with, re with, medic with medical marijuana, there was a 25% decrease in opioid deaths. Uh, so I can't say that that's opioid usage, but at least opioid abuse does seem to go down in states with medical marijuana. Uh, there is a one study that says that that trend continues in Colorado with recreational. Um, most people say that it's far too early to know whether or not that's a statistically relevant uh, 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 sample size at this point, or at least timeline. Uh, but I would say there's some good evidence that, that there's, some su there's opioid substitute uh, a substitution going on. Um, there's some evidence, again, not post-legalization, but in general, that there's a relationship, a complementary relationship between tobacco and marijuana uh, that should be explored uh, about whether or not to, the, the price points and usage of tobacco increases the usage of, of marijuana and vice versa. Uh, alcohol, um, uh, again, the numbers are all over the board. I would say probably the alcohol industry knows a heck of a lot better than us public health people do at this point because uh, they're doing the market research data uh, and they're not sharing it with us. Um, and, uh, but but we, uh, we don't know, and illicit drug usage, there's no causal relationship that we can point to at this time. Uh, now, I would also say on that, um, it'd be far too early to have that from, uh, from, the, pinpoint, from the point of uh, the legalization of marijuana. Uh, when you talk to a public health official, they would say, okay, so what you would have to be saying in order for that to lead to an increase in uh, other illicit drug use is somebody that was not gonna use marijuana pre-legalization decides to use it post-legalization, gets addicted to it, gets so addicted to it needs another high that they start to use an illicit drug, uses that illicit drug enough that they get caught using that illicit drug and then shows up in our data system which normally takes about 18 months for that to happen. And so you are looking six to eight years down the road for there to be any impact shown uh, from the legalization, uh, that that's an un, that that is a long causal relationship in order to get there, and so. So the, the other question is always about supply side um, pushing. Uh, first of all, Colorado is a very small part of the entire uh, illicit world of, of drug supply, right? So if you're talking about does Mexico change how it's doing business operations be, because of what's going on in Colorado, the answer is probably not, right? That's, that's a much bigger economy uh, than just simply Colorado legalization. And so you won't see it from one state going on to legalization. The second, and this is hard to know, but what people who study uh, illicit drugs say is that they'll push whatever profit margins there are no matter what. And so uh, they don't diversify because simply because um, one of the things is taken away from them, they, they diversify because they see a business opportunity. 
I have no way of telling you whether or not that's correct. I am not an expert in those things, uh, but it also is an impossible statistic to measure from uh, a causal relationship. Let's take a question on this side. Um, I just have a question. Oh, sure. My name is Lori Yurick. I'm with uh, Tom's River Township, actually. Um, my question is about public use. What are your laws regarding public use and secondhand smoke? So uh, this, it, this is an open question, not only in Colorado, but nationally. Uh, both delivery systems and public use are kind of the biggest regulatory questions that we have. Um, Colorado didn't start out without with having any direct way of having public use. It was basically you could use it at your home and your friend's home. Um, uh, a lot of people started what were called social clubs, uh, where you couldn't buy marijuana there, but uh, you could bring your own marijuana and use it uh, for like a fee to, to enter into the club. Uh, those have dubious legalities to them, but the, that's what was being used. I've always argued, and I think I would stick with, um, it probably should be made a privilege of the license, um, uh, of having a, a retail store license, that local communities can make their own decision whether or not they're gonna use those, uh, uh, those systems, because it, there are neighborhoods where people don't have private homes, right, that, that you live in an apartment building that doesn't allow for uh, any marijuana usage there, and so either they're, they're legally smoking inside their apartment building or they're illegally smoking outside, and they, really, they truly do not have a place to use it where they're not um, serving as some sort of uh, hindrance on the people around them, and honestly, the biggest complaint we really get about marijuana legalization is that people smell it, um, although that's gone down over time. Um, uh, I would say, I think, and I don't have any proof to say that this is true, but I think if, if we put it within the same regulatory system as a, a tasting rooms model, um, uh, which did just pass through the legislature, I don't know if the governor's gonna sign it in Colorado, but is, that's what exists in California, uh, that, um, that there is a way to regulate it and we could do specifically vaping with, uh, with good uh, ventilation uh, and maybe edibles usage. Um, so, but again, I have no data to point to to say that, that that's a, uh, the correct way forward. Hi, I'm Murray Sabrin, Ramapo College, but I'm not here in that capacity. I'm here in the capacity of a U.S. Senate candidate on the Libertarian Party uh, line. Uh, we ca we're calling for the uh, federal legalization of marijuana, as you well know. So I have two short questions. Um, one is, in, unless I missed it, I didn't see any savings from law enforcement mm -hmm. since uh, legalization. And secondly, if it's a true legalization program, why are there still marijuana arrests? Yeah. So um, uh, the first question on savings versus costs, uh, that is a uh, continued source of heated debate. Uh, if you ask the law enforcement officials whether or not their, their costs have gone up and down, they're all going to say it went up, right? The home grow problem that we had in Colorado, um, uh, social, social use of this, uh, teaching new laws to officers, uh, new training programs that are required. You'll hear uh, the, the drug recognition dogs that they had no longer uh, uh, are probable cause because they smell from marijuana. All these systems they have changed. There's probably some truth that there's some upstart costs to law enforcement. Uh, particularly the home grow problem really was a, was a problem. Um, uh, if you talk to everybody else, you see, well, there's a decrease in arrests. That's fewer people in the prisons. Uh, cost savings are a lot harder thing to, me to measure uh, than uh, simple upfront to, to actual budget line items. Uh, and so 
Uh, we can't point to a budget line item in the short term and say this doesn't exist now because of legalization. It simply doesn't exist and everybody will if you engage in that analysis, it'll become one of the most political analyses you've ever seen. So um, uh, it's one that I've steered people away from, mainly because in Colorado, it doesn't matter. We've legalized. Either it is a savings or it isn't a savings. And uh, for our purposes, we're still pushing forward regardless. I'm going to get to your second question first. Um, uh, still illegal to grow uh, and divert uh, out of state. Uh, still illegal to sell to children. Um, still illegal to, uh, to drive while high. Um, uh, still illegal possession limits. Um, uh, there, there are a number of ways in which uh, the law is a carve out for here is what is legal and responsible use and, and here's what's illegal. Uh, and those, those are the ones that are still being enforced. A counterfactual like that, again, uh, the best you can just say is here's how much it was the arrest rate was before, and here's what it well, what it is now. Well, I, I mean, you can go back and say this is how many people were incarcerated. The, the truth is, we didn't incarcerate many people for uh, marijuana crimes for a long time because uh, we'd gone through a decriminalization process. Um, I, I, the last time we we checked, right after legalization, there was nobody in prison at that time for a marijuana-only offense that was not large-scale distribution, um, and so. Uh, there was nobody to let out of jail because we did check to see if like, hey, is there somebody in for simple possession that we should be letting out of jail? That did not exist. Okay. I'm guessing that once, if a market opens for something like marijuana, sorry, my name is Mark Avery from Zarephath Christian Church in Somerset, New Jersey. I'm not here speaking for the church, just speaking for me personally. Um, so I'm guessing that once the market opens up to something like marijuana, um, the business is going to take on a logic of its own, and the industry is going to start to drive um, some of the messaging that gets out there, and especially the messaging that the kids are really going to want to listen to. And I'm wondering how confident are we that, like, if we, for example, I have, I love a fireplace in my living room. I don't light it in the middle of the floor because there's no barriers around it. Yep. How confident are you that the barriers we're talking about putting in place are going to keep that fire in the fireplace, not the living room? Uh, great, great analogy. Um, how confident am I that we have the right guardrails around, around industry uh, to prevent what I, what is probably, you're probably referring to either as, um, irresponsible use uh, or regulatory capture. Um, and Can I answer that? Yeah. Can I answer that? Yep. Yeah. So unintended consequences. Yep. Well, so the, 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 the exact question is how, how confident are you? And my answer would be foolish to say anything but uh, not confident at all. I, I think this is a reiterative process. I think the thing you have to set up is good data streams, a strong regulatory power, uh, and, um, and barriers against regulatory capture. I think those are, those are the three lessons we've learned from tobacco already, that, uh, that we need to be able to, this is a fight you're gonna have every generation of marijuana le uh, of legalization. This is not flipping a switch and saying, here are the barriers, let the system run. If you are not able to go back to the legislature, go back to your regulatory powers, literally every cycle, and saying, this is a new problem we're seeing. Like, People are abusing vaping pens in this way, and we need this new mechanism on vaping pens. Um, 
uh, we have a real problem with hash oil and, and, ha and dab rigs and where they're, where they're being allowed and, and how they're being administered. You, you seriously, this is a lifelong fight, as every highly regulated industry should be, right? It, it should go throughout the industry. And again, the only three things that you need to make sure you have on the front end are barriers to regulatory capture, uh, uh, strong regulatory powers and access to data streams that are going to tell you if you have a public health or public safety problem. One more. Hey, how you doing? My name's Gabriel, private citizen. Um, you mentioned earlier about Colorado and small business owner and entrepreneurship. Uh, how did the banking industry deal with that? You, you had yeah. touched on that, yeah, but banking. I wanted to get a little bit more I can't detail. reuse my joke, can or I? Yeah, no, All I can't right. reuse <laughs> So banking's a problem because federal regulators sit on top of all banking systems, whether or not it's a state bank or a federal bank. Uh, at some point, you're running, you have to run it over federal wires uh, with the Federal Reserve. And so if you want a bank, uh, uh, they can say no. And, uh, and then you, you lose all access to banking. Uh, the, what we originally saw um, was every bank backed out. Uh, once it became clear that the federal government, once the federal government said anything about it, every bank backed out. We were getting every, all of our taxes were coming in cash, which made us know that everything else was happening in cash as well. Um, we tried a whole bunch of Hail Mary passes that I am sure are coming your way, that I can save you a lot of time. Um, we tried to open up our own essentially state uh, chartered, uh, both state chartered credit union, but also our, we started our own uh, financial co-ops uh, in legislation. Both of those failed at the Federal Reserve level um, uh, because, again, you still need their permission to go forward with those things. Um, people make all sorts of claims about cryptocurrency and how that can solve the problem. I have yet to see it. Um, and uh, if it could have happened, it probably would have happened in Colorado. So I don't think that cryptocurrency will be your answer. The, the answer ended up being that community banks and credit unions um, uh, created regulatory schemes specific towards marijuana-related banks, where they actually do tell the, gov the federal government through something called a suspicious activity report that they are banking marijuana. Uh, and the federal government doesn't say, good for you. It just doesn't say anything. And, uh, and so they do tend to, they have been granting uh, forgiveness, even when they don't give permission, uh, as long as you go and you, you uh, put forward these suspicious activity reports and show that they're state legal sales, essentially. It's a very short answer to what could be its own hour-long um, uh, thing. And that has led to about 80 to 90% banked in Colorado. Uh, that is going to be the short-term solution until there's a federal government uh, actual change in statute that, that allows for banking. All right. That was great. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. Andrew, Andrew is not going anywhere, uh, little does he know, no. Um, but he, I'm sure he will be included in the uh, panel discussion that's, that's upcoming. So panelists, come on up while I explain how this is going to work. I think we have four. And basically how this works, um, we're going to have discussion for the next hour or so. If you have, in, in this case, if you have questions or, or uh, comments on things that you want to raise, Write them down on a piece of paper. There's some pads on your, on your tables. Uh, take a seat. Feel free. Um, and uh, wave them to one of us who will be walking around the edges and um, 
and we'll get it to the moderator. And I'd like to introduce the moderator. Is Lee Keough, our editor-in-chief and, and one of our founding members, or founding members, one of our founding editors. Uh, Lee brings an incredible amount of knowledge to this issue in, in covering it as the editor uh, for Spotlight and, and also having uh, tracked it as a journalist for a long time as well. So I'd like to introduce Lee Keough, and she'll lead this discussion. And again, if you have questions or comments, Wave them and, and be aware we are also going to be writing about this, uh, this conference and be posting, I think, Andrew, uh, can we post this? We'll be posting this PowerPoint on our site as well, so that will be available. But for, further ado, Lee Keough. Thanks. Okay. Well, we have a pretty good panel here. Um, I will say... Um, one of the things that I will bring up later is that we do not have a legislator here. And um, <laughs> Bill, Bill will, will speak for the legislators since he knows them so well. No. Um, but uh, we don't have a legislator here. And we have done, I don't know, John, how many roundtables, 20, 30 in our eight years, something like that. And uh, we've never had a roundtable without a legislator, ever. Uh, to my knowledge, to my recollection. And I think maybe one or two. And I think that's because even though the um, discussion in the state level and the understanding in the state level is that, they, that it's going to go through, that they're going to vote this year and they're going to vote for legalization, um, well, you can tell me, but uh, it seems to me that nobody wants to be out front with this. So there's a lot of things to talk about and... Um, Without further ado, maybe we, I will ask each of the panelists to, to introduce themselves and give a little uh, background on, on their positions on this, and then we'll go to some questions. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Bill Caruso. Um, I am a uh, father of three boys under the age of 12, um, uh, happily married to an uh, unbelievable person uh, who's allowed me to be out in this space. Um, <laughs> Uh, her, her warning to me when I told her I was going to do this is, I'm good with whatever you do, I just don't want to be married to Mr. Pot. Um, so I apologize to my wife for that. But um, I, I'm involved in this for a lot of weird reasons. I, I'm, I'm the uh, managing director of Archer and Griner, or Archer Law's uh, government affairs effort. That's where I was hired to do. They hired me out of government after working for 20 years to build this practice. And, uh, and, and, and we were doing really well. Um, I spent 20 years of my life in government. I, I was the chief of staff to United States Congressman Rob Andrews, um, a, a very moderate Democrat in South Jersey. Um, I had the privilege and pleasure of working for two speakers of the General Assembly, uh, Speaker Joe Roberts and then Speaker Sheila Oliver, who's now our state's lieutenant governor. Um, during that time, that 20-year period, um, at the age of 22 and a half to 44 now, I really watched the progression of this issue. And um, I watched in 2000 where this was just an issue we didn't talk about. In fact, I remember driving around with a congressman and, and not wanting to talk about this topic. God forbid he would have asked me what I did in college and not wanting to admit any of that. And we saw the progression of medicinal and all, all the like. And I actually helped to write the state's first medicinal law as the executive director, as a staffer. This is the fun, geeky stuff that we do when we're in staff. You, know, you get around these heady issues, and I'm excited to be a part of it. And we sat with patients, we sat with advocates, and we promised them that we had to start small. In 2008 and 2009, this was not medicinal marijuana, it was not popular. So we had to start small, we had to move, we had to get there, and then we passed a law. And then it was never implemented properly because we had a change in governor, and the governor 
at the time the bill was passed had one view and the new governor, Governor Christie, had different views on this. And we never really implemented the medical law the way it was supposed to be. And it was broken. And the reason I got involved here now, and I went to Archer and Greiner as a new attorney and said, hey, I know you guys just uh, hired me here, and I know you've got all these other lofty plans, but I want to work on something that we're not going to get paid for. And it's going to be rooted in racial and social justice, and I want to work with my friends in the ACLU and the NAACP and other organizations that have come together. And we're going to build a movement that really isn't really part of anything you do. And by the way, we're going to do it on marijuana, which is illegal at the federal level, illegal here in the state. I thought our ethics officer's head was going to explode when I offered this, but they allowed me to do this. I was fortunate to get involved with some really good people. We built this in 2014. NJUMR was founded on the principle that we are going to make this an issue in the next election. This was back before uh, Governor Murphy was even a thought in people's minds. We are going to advocate and educate the public and the legislature about the merits of legalization because the medical system and everything else was broken. And we were going to do something different than anyone else has done. We weren't going to work on ballot questions because here we don't have initiative and referendum. We only have constitutional amendments. But we were going to root this in racial and social justice because the one thing we looked about around the country is as states were legalizing, there was one segment of the population that was being left out. We were ending the, the uh, disparate treatment in some respects for arrest and incarceration for black and brown people around these jurisdictions but it was an all-white industry we created. So we set out to start educating on these issues. We set out to devote our time and energy on this, and I can't be more proud to be where we are now because in New Jersey, and we'll talk about this more, we're not legalizing marijuana unless we adopt a, a, a scenario that will encompass true racial and social justice reform. That's the enactment strategy now. So I, I'm privileged to work with some really great people. I'm part of NJUMR part of NJCIA and part of a lot of different organizations that are working on this. Um, and it's a really neat and fun topic to be involved in. So thank you for being here. Good morning, everyone. My name is Diana Wainu. I'm the policy counsel with the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey. Um, and what brings the ACLU to the table of uh, marijuana legalization is the same thing, are the, the priorities and the, the, the values that Bill outlined. Um, for us, this is a racial justice and a civil rights issue. Um, and so, um, as Bill mentioned, in 2014, 2015, um, we started a, a statewide coalition, New Jersey United for Marijuana Reform. Some of the, uh, and Bill named a, a NAACP. Um, Bill is a part of this co coalition. Um, other members include um, the Latino Action Network, a uh, national organization called uh, Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, uh, Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which used to be called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Um, we have municipal prosecutors, and um, we're backed by faith leaders, uh, elected officials, um, newspaper um, and media outlets. Um, and so we're, we're a conglomerate of, uh, we're really a broad-based coalition of uh, people who come from different perspectives who have all reached the same conclusion, and that is, the war on marijuana has failed, and we need to do something about it. Um, and so in New Jersey, we are making 25,000 arrests for marijuana possession alone each year. Um, we're, our numbers at an, are at an all-time high. Um, some new data has recently come out um, that looked at 2016 um, arrests, and that number jumped 30% to more than 32,000 arrests in New Jersey. And 
with each arrest comes significant consequences. Not only are you uh, facing possible jail time and fines of a, more than $1,000, if you're a student, you can lose your financial aid. If you are an immigrant, you can be deported. You can be kicked out of housing. You could lose your job and be barred from future employment. Um, and you could actually, uh, your, the custody of your children is jeopardized and you can be banned from adopting children for a period of time. So these are consequences that affect not just one person who's arrested, but the entire family and our entire communities. Um, and uh, our communities are not equally uh, impacted by the war on marijuana either. Um, across the country, blacks are disproportionately arrested, um, and Latinos as well, uh, for marijuana possession. In New Jersey, blacks are arrested at a rate that's three times higher than whites, despite similar usage rates. And so our collateral consequences are disproportionately falling onto communities of color. And so at NJUMR, we believe that through legalization, we can begin to address some of the harms that have been uh, inflicted on our communities um, and actually do some good, right? Restore some, of the, some justice to, uh, to our communities all across the state. Um, and so some of the racial justice and social justice things that we're fighting for that, um, as Bill said, can, must be a part of uh, our legalization scheme here in New Jersey is we wanna see automatic expungements up front. Um, because as Andrew said, it's expensive, it's onerous, it's burdensome, and we shouldn't be forcing people to continue bearing the stigma and the collateral consequences of behavior we're saying is legal. Um, we also want to see a very limited uh, home grow so that people can grow a limited number of plants for personal use in their own homes. So people with limited mobility or limited income um, don't have to uh, drive long distances or uh, be subject to the pricing whims of businesses. Um, and patients can grow the strains that they need. Um, we also want to see reinvestment of tax revenue that's generated into communities, into community programs, particularly those that have been damaged by the war on marijuana and the war on drugs. And we also want to make sure that there's a real meaningful way for people to access the jobs and the business ownership opportunities that are gonna come with legalization. It shouldn't cost $50,000 just to apply for a license. Um, and we shouldn't be barring people with criminal convictions from getting a license either. Because if you're, the goal is to undercut the underground market, the fastest way to shoot yourself in the foot is by boxing out people who you know have, uh, have experience in selling marijuana um, and boxing out a huge portion of our population that has been entangled in the criminal justice system. That is a disservice to our communities and to the effort to legalize here. So those are the four priorities that we're pushing for. Um, and we, ACLU, NJUMR, and all of our partners have been going up and down the state educating the public, um, talking to lawmakers and their staffers about this issue, about why it's important and how we need to get it done here in New Jersey. All right, between my opposition to the legalization of marijuana and my phantom of the Dodgers and the hope that we beat the Yankees in the World Series, I don't expect any of you to clap for me. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, my name is Frank Greenagle, and uh, I teach at the Rutgers Center of Alcohol Studies, the Rutgers School of Social Work, the Rutgers School of Communication. I am the, I'm a consulting therapist for the New York State Troopers uh, Employee Assistance Program. New York State Troopers was the first law enforcement organization in the country to have an EAP. 
I am a first lieutenant in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard. I rejoined the military in 2014 after having been out for 10 years, uh, being a veteran as a combat tanker, uh, where I treat people for PTSD, both current service members and veterans. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, I'm the, uh, I am the supervising therapist for the New Jersey Recovery High School. It is the first and so far only recovery high school in the state of New Jersey. It's one of only about 30 recovery high schools in the country. And I am the, I'm a member of various uh, boards. I won't get into all of them. I am on the board of NASW New Jersey. I am the chair of public policy for the New Jersey Society of Addiction Medicine. That is the state branch of the national chair. And I am not a doctor, so you can imagine how difficult it is for a non-doctor to be chair of a medical group and what I might go through sometimes. Uh, I'm not representing any of those organizations. I am a poor stand-in for Kevin Sabet, who knows these issues much better than I do. Uh, he is the president and CEO of uh, SAM, and the New Jersey arm of that is RAMP, and I am standing in here uh, for him. So uh, I'm someone. Uh, as a private, oh, so I'm a licensed social worker in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and I work for a number of treatment uh, programs as well. Nothing full, nothing full time. Uh, I am someone who will make money if marijuana is legalized in New Jersey. I want to be very, very clear about that. There will be more people who come in for treatment uh, for uh, issues related to addiction. Uh, more people will come in and see, uh, seek treatment for pro uh, mental health problems that are caused by or more likely exacerbated by use, and. Uh, I do a lot of community trainings. I'm brought into schools. I have uh, a number of trainings this month about what, what will be our prevention messages or treatment messages in the age of, uh, in the age of medical marijuana in New Jersey and in the, with a legalized marijuana. And uh, all those things will go up. So I will personally benefit from legalized marijuana. I will very much benefit from it. And I'm here to say that I'm still against it. To be clear, I, am, I believe in decriminalization. I think a number of issues uh, that my colleague here from the ACLU uh, has addressed can be solved by decriminalization rather than legalization. What I have seen with sleeping drugs like Ambien, uh, with stimulant drugs like Adderall, like uh, prescription painkillers, with a legalized market, use goes up. All right, that was alluded to in the young man's presentation earlier, and he often and I, I really appreciated the measured tones he used, uh, as far as we often we don't have enough data, and there, I think there was a point near the end where he said we need six to eight more years in Colorado to find out what's going to happen, and so. Look, I'm a proud American, but I like New Jersey best, and I want to let other states be the petri dish. Why? What is the rush? Uh, wait till 2020, wait till 2022, wait till 24. The, it's not that, so the big arguments, and I'll, I'll move on, is it's a major source of revenue, which, again, the young man pointed out earlier, that's just not true. It's less than 1% of the revenue in Colorado, or 1% to 3% of the market in Colorado. New Jersey has a budget of $37 billion. Now, in the late, in the mid-1970s, for those of you old enough to remember, and I am not old enough to remember, uh, the casino arguments in Atlantic, so there was a big pushback against casinos because it was going to be mining the poor and it was going to be this addictive habit. And the push that was given was that casino revenue would go to rebuild Atlantic City, it would be used for the roads, and it would be used for some other issues. And it was for a couple of years, and then we got new legislators, and they took that money and they put it into the general fund. This will happen again. So if we do get it legalized, there will be money set aside earlier for schools and prevention. And then there will be some new New Jersey budget crisis 
whether it's pensions or property tax relief or whatever, and new legislators who weren't involved in this will see that as revenue and move it somewhere else. Uh, it is medicine. I can talk about that. Uh, it's, it, we don't have double-blind, random clinical trials uh, on these issues. Uh, I was uh, a bit appalled that Governor Murphy expanded the use of medical marijuana from 11 to 30, and that actually undercuts the revenue source. Medical marijuana is taxed at a much lower rate than recreational marijuana, and so if we expand the number of people that can use medical marijuana, he undercuts the tax-based argument. And again, uh, I do not view this as a civil rights issue. In Washington, D.C., whites uh, supported legalization of marijuana at 76%, blacks 58%. If, it was, if this is a civil rights issue, this is the first issue ever where white people are more supportive of it than black people. Uh, and so again, uh, a lot of these issues can be fixed by decriminalization. I am in fully support of any law as William, do you go by William or Bill? I'm sorry. Bill. All right, so as Bill pointed out, I think any law that does happen in New Jersey, whether it's decriminalization or legalization, really must address issues of uh, current incarceration, uh, issues of uh, getting uh, expungement, and, and looking at those things. But again, we can do that with decriminalization. No clapping. <laughs> Good morning, my name is Dustin McDonald and I run government relations for WM Policy, the policy branch of Weed Maps. I want to start by thanking New Jersey Spotlight for organizing this forum. Borrowing off of Mr. Friedman's comments, I, I really do think that these kinds of events are critical. As you can see, we have a diversity of perspectives on this panel, which I think is, is a fundamental feature that, that needs to be had on these, in these kinds of conversations, where folks who are interested in, from the community, from the elected side, who are trying to get a balanced perspective about how to approach organizing policy in this space, they really do need to hear from all sides. So this is a great forum. Uh, big thanks to New Jersey Spotlight for organizing this and for allowing us to serve on the panel. In terms of, of our views on where all this is going, first off, from a WM policy perspective, generally what we're doing is we're going through and trying to help states and local governments build out models that realize their objectives. And those objectives traditionally fall into a couple different areas. One, they want to try to improve public health and safety outcomes, where there are public safety risks associated with an existing illegal market, seeking to correct those, trying to uh, migrate an existing illegal market to a legal marketplace so that you can ultimately drive down illegal market crime. In terms of public health outcomes for folks who have dependency issues from opioids uh, and, and other dangerous drugs, cannabis is proving to be uh, a, a, an acceptable uh, source of, of helping to withdraw folks um, off of those dangerous drugs. So that's a great uh, use of cannabis for the opioid piece, but also uh, there's a number of, of applications of cannabis for other health conditions, chronic health conditions, pain management, and cannabis has been proven to be an effective use there. So from the public health side, it's very important that that side be built out. We're really trying to help those state and local governments realize those pieces, as well as where there's an interest in, in really analyzing and trying to achieve some economic productivity from the industry, um, basically the best way to kind of engineer those kinds of models while still working to uh, produce the other, the other outcomes that you want to from the state and local uh, kind of regulatory perspective. Um, I think New Jersey, compared to all the other states across this country that have organized these, one of these models, has an opportunity to be a real leader here. And I think that for two reasons. One, New Jersey's approaching 
cannabis policy reform through the legislature. That allows for a much more thoughtful, deliberative process to occur, as opposed to New Jersey having New Jersey's legislature having to react to a ballot initiative under a very condensed time period that tends to not produce very good policy outcomes and forces state legislatures to spend five, ten years making tweaks to the model, oftentimes having to choose between going back to the voters, which can be very costly um, and challenging, or trying to get a two-thirds vote passed through a legislature um, because it, it is a voter referendum to institute important changes. Obviously, as some of our other panelists have discussed, this is a difficult policy issue to wrestle with from an elected standpoint. It's very tricky to navigate the space, and so uh, there, there's definitely a need for more time and for more thoughtfulness in the approach. New Jersey is approaching it that way. You've got some great leadership in the Senate as, they, as Senator Scutari tries to move forward with legislation on this, and of course the governor's office has been instrumental in trying to roll this out in a functioning, responsible way. So I think New Jersey really has an opportunity to lead in the policy space here in building out the medical model first and expanding that model. It's really setting itself up and laying the foundation to create a functioning legal access model on the adult use side. And what I mean by that is too often as states move forward with these models, they might lay down a medical model and immediately try to layer on an adult use model um, or try to do both simultaneously. The challenge with that is ultimately you're throwing everything together all at once and you don't really know what you're doing. Oftentimes those policy models fail and ultimately impose costs on taxpayers, costs on public health and costs on public safety that take years to address. So in the way that New Jersey is approaching it, it's on the right track. I think New Jersey really has an opportunity to be a leader here. Great. Thanks. I should have mentioned at the beginning that there are two bills in the legislature, two, I guess there are two in the Assembly and one in the um, Senate, that outline, if you, if you go to the Office of Legislative Services, you can, you can read them. They have 61 pages. It made me fall asleep reading the whole thing. But um, they are, they, although, as the, this panel will say, it's really a straw man. I mean, they, we have, these are not decisions or, that have been made, but these are the things that we've already, that the legislature has already been thinking about. And they haven't been in consultation with the um, uh, governor's office. So anyway, so one of my first questions is, it, uh, Frank brought up a, um, a really good question. Why are we talking about uh, legalization and not decriminalization if uh, some of the issues are social justice and equity and uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't that suffice? Um, yes, it is. It's a very good question. Frank brings up this this very important issue that is being uh, talked about, um, not just um, among the public, um, of, among people who are not quite there yet with legalization, but also among members of the legislature as well. Um, decriminalization. Well, so first of all, what decriminalization is is removing criminal penalties um, for behavior. So instead of being arrested um, just for possessing marijuana, we would get issued a ticket and much like a parking ticket. So you would be fined civilly. Um, and under a decriminalization model, um, as Andrew mentioned, you can still have arrests. Um, and so for the ACLU and NJUMR, we feel that decriminalization does not achieve the racial and social justice goals expressed by um, the legislature and legislators, I should say, and the governor because you would still see arrests because if you, are, if you can't pay the fines, guess what? 
you get arrested. Um, and nor does it create jobs that can go back to some of our uh, communities that need economic opportunities, nor does it uh, uh, generate revenue that can pay for some funding, uh, that can fund community programs. Um, it also doesn't regulate marijuana. So under a decriminalization structure, you still, marijuana would still be on the streets, unregulated. There would be no t product testing requirements, no packaging and labeling, um, no uh, age limits to, to get it. Um, so you would s still go out on the street, you don't know what you're getting, um, and anybody can get it. Um, so it would still remain in that gray area. And from a public safety perspective, um, it keeps the underground market alive. So decriminalization doesn't eliminate the underground market. It keeps it very much alive and well. Um, and children would still have access to cannabis. So we feel that decriminalization doesn't solve those issues, but legalization with proper regulations and strict uh, rules can provide a barrier of entry for, for, for kids. It can provide product testing, testing and packaging and labeling requirements. It can generate jobs for communities. It can generate revenue for our programs. But decriminalization for us doesn't get there. Frank, did you want to add anything to that? So with, with decriminalization, we don't have the businesses set up. And with legalization, you're all going to have businesses set up, which obviously is a big motivator, especially for potential business owners. I grew up in Tewksbury uh, Township, New Jersey. My mom still lives there. It is an incredibly wealthy, almost entirely white area in Hunterdon County. Uh, I am almost certain that marijuana will not be sold in Tewksbury Township if we get it legalized. I am also very certain that it will not be sold in Upper Saddle River. It will not be sold in Alpine. Uh, South Jersey, I don't know South Jersey that well, but whatever rich area, rich white people live in South Jersey, I'm pretty sure it's not gonna be sold there either. Where I am pretty sure it is going to be sold if we get legalization, I'm just gonna list some, I'm gonna list some cities and I want you to think about what, what these cities, what, what it brings to mind. Atlantic City. Patterson, Newark, New Jersey City, Elizabeth, Camden, Trenton. So uh, again, there are other social justice issues that pop up. And I'll just, there's a, there's a young man named Will Jones who now works for uh, uh, Smart Applications of Marijuana, Sam. And uh, he is from Washington, DC. And he's a young man of color who got his public policy degree from Georgetown. And he, and he opposed marijuana legalization in DC. Obviously, he was part of the losing side. And his program is called Two is Enough. And, it's, and two is enough refers to alcohol and tobacco within the black and minority, other minority communities. And, did, and so the question you have to ask yourself is, did alcohol regulation do a good job for black and Hispanic people? Has tobacco, has the regulation of tobacco worked out great for blacks and Hispanics in those communities as well? Um, for somebody that travels around a lot in my other day job, I, I can tell you that that statement about the places is, is wrong. Um, Camden City right now isn't interested in any cannabis. They're not. I talk to them pretty regularly. 
And I talk to many white suburban mayors right now. Um, you know, we can talk about uh, the People's Republic of Montclair. Uh, we can talk about, uh, well, Asbury Park, we can say, is kind of urban. Um, I've spoken to many mayors in South Jersey. By the way, God bless them, who are keeping their views right now close to their vest because they're educating themselves on what this can mean. But they're looking at their industrial parks, and they're saying, well, why not, right? They're looking at old office parks. And what we're also looking at doing, guys, because you made a good point before about the R&D side of this. And the truth of the matter is, there is no R&D going on in the United States of America in a robust way. That's outrageous. We're the greatest country on the face of this planet, particularly when it comes to research. And Israel, Canada, Colombia, India are cleaning our clocks on this, on medical research. So, and I look at some of my friends out in the audience here who come from that side of the fence. I look at my friends from higher ed who come from that side of the fence. And when you look at agricultural and you look at pharmaceutical research that we have the capability of doing here, why not? And that comes with a legal economy. That's one of the added benefits of doing this. The last piece I'll just say to you is I have some privilege sitting here. If I get in my car and I drive somewhere around here, by the way, in one of the suburban communities or one of the urban communities in this very diverse area, and buy some weed today after I'm done here and go smoke it and get arrested, I am privileged because I have means. And what that means is I'll go to court because I know somebody, I'll get in pretrial intervention because I know somebody, and I, my sentence will be whatever money I can pay out of my pocket and my fine because I've got that money in my pocket, and then I go into the rubber room of a drug treatment program that's mandated in this, and I pay for that too. And I sit there, I watch a video, I, I understand that you know, I have to go through this process, I get my certificate, and I go back to the judge. I have the ability to do that. I'm not sure, and this is not just about race, this is also about economic means. I'm not sure that everyone else does. And we create through a decriminalization scheme. That's one of the issues, right? It's pretrial intervention. It's not going into jail. It's not getting incarcerated. But then you got to go through this program. If you can't pay your fine and you can't pay for your own drug treatment, you end up in the system. And that's one of the core problems here that we're fighting for. I don't want to belabor this point, but as a because I think this has been answered. But um, one of the biggest blocks against this is um, one uh, black senator, and um, he, he's been speaking to all the African American uh, churches, and he has gotten a lot of support from them to, you know, be opposed to this. So if that's the case, I think you've answered it, but if you have anything else to say, I mean, if that's the case, I think um, it, you know, moves us to reconsider the whole issue, clearly. Yeah, and uh, Frank brought up a great point. Like, uh, when he talked about how there is no uniform position among communities of color, right? They are divided on this as well. Um, they're the Senator Rice is the chair of the Legislative Black Caucus. He is vocally opposed to legalization in favor of decriminalization. Um, and, but there are members of the Black Caucus who are supportive of legalization um, and who, for whom decriminalization is not the, the proper solution. Um, and I think uh, to, to answer more directly Frank's question of you know, why is this a civil rights issue if communities of color aren't all on board with it, um, it's because, look, we have all been bombarded with the message of the war on drugs, right? That all drugs are bad. If you do drugs, you are inherently a bad person beyond redemption. 
and you need to be locked up. I mean, we have a president who advocates for the severest and most extreme penalties for drug offenses. We've all been bombarded with these messages our whole lives. It was a very, admittedly, an effective messaging campaign. Um, and it just goes to sh the fact that uh, not all communities of color, not all people of color are on board with legalization goes to show that this really does have a strong hold on each and every one of us. Um, it is uh, part of the meritocracy message that we are beaten over the head with every day in this country. Um, but we ha when we start to understand what marijuana is, what it's not, understanding that it is not the gateway drug that we were led to believe it was, um, it does not cause people to use harder drugs. There are more predictive, there are better reliable factors that we can look to that will determine, that can uh, uh, determine or project um, who is likely to develop uh, substance abuse uh, dependency. And they are poverty, home environment, social environment, right? It's not marijuana use. Um, but once we understand these things, once we understand what cannabis is, what it's not, um, and what the war on drugs was and what it was not. It was a campaign explicitly and admittedly created to target people of color. There's a former aide to Richard Nixon who admitted this in a media interview. He said, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. We did it so that we could uh, disrupt uh, black and hippie communities and raid their homes and arrest their leaders. So this is, at its heart, a racial justice issue. If the war on drugs was created with, the, with racist intent, we have to account for racial justice in stopping the war and ending it. Okay, I wanna make an assumption here that this passes, all right, just for, for, for the sake of argument. Um, legalization, okay. What, three years from now, what do you expect to see in New Jersey in terms of the industry, in terms of access and, you know, not, not necessarily cost, but, you know, whatever. The whole, what's going what's gonna to change three years from now? Well, and well, also medical and... and uh, sure. I, I think a lot. And the first thing I'll say, and I echo Diana's, I, and I know the center has some friends here too, um, Senator Rice is helping us. He may not know that in that sense, but he's helping make this better. And his advocacy for where he is, and I don't agree with everything where he is, but he's helping, he's making these arguments. And I think that he's going to help make this a better law. So, and for everybody out there, and, and you, Frank, you brought up really great points. Wherever we end up, and I do agree with you, this is inevitable, this is where we're going. The, 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 the pointing out the problems is good. So here's where we're gonna be. I mean, I think we're going to have a fairly robust economy. Um, it is an interesting question of where the federal government's going to be in three years, which I don't think I would have said six months ago, but now I am. But Jersey will be, I think, well on its way to a, a, a fairly robust economy wedged between two of the most you know, affluent cities uh, on the face of the planet, you know, you know, New York City and then Philadelphia. There's tremendous population. There's tremendous research. So I think you're going to see the recreational market that's already been created in other states. You'll see you know, that we, what we've talked about that's risen in Colorado, Nevada, and other places. But I also think you're gonna see something vastly different. We're starting to see medical 
uh, universities, um, medical institutions, whether it's hospital or, or research components, beginning to look at this drug and beginning to research this drug for a variety of different applications, whether it's pain management, uh, anti-addiction, and, and, and all sorts of things, uh, epilepsy, autism. Jersey has the ability to capture that market, and I think that's really the true test. Now, the other side of the coin is, I think, as we've been advocating for here at NJUMR, I think Jersey could be the model for the nation, as every other state right now that's legalized or is about to are backing into this racial and social justice argument. We want to bake ours into the cake from the front end. Right. And so I think the ability to do that, and I go back to where Senator Rice is. Senator Rice has put a flag in the ground right now and said, I don't believe in this because I don't believe in the fact that it's going to help these communities. And we've got to demonstrate to him how and why and where. And we've got to demonstrate to other members of the caucuses, both the black and Latino caucuses, but the general caucuses in each one of the four, uh, four uh, se se sectors of the legislature on the Republican and Democratic side that this is going to have benefit. So that's the, that's the true test. But you're going to see a racially diverse industry in the recreational side. You're going to see expansion of medicinal but I think you're gonna see huge, huge developments in research and development in both agriculture and pharma. I'd agree with Bill's comments. As I mentioned in my opening remarks, I really do think New Jersey has an opportunity to become a leader on the policy side in this space, but also in the growth and advancement of the industry as a whole, uh, driving through the legislature, allowing a more deliberative process, again, that entertains a lot of diverse viewpoints into how this thing can be shaped, helps us really learn the lessons of the states that have gone before, which is exactly what we're trying to do, showing, providing the state's comparative analysis. Here's the policy that succeeded in achieving your objectives, whether they be social minority equity, whether they be economic uh, empowerment and job creation, whether they be improvements in public health and safety. Here are the policies that succeeded in, in driving down that road to achieve those objectives. And here are the ones that failed. And here are the costs on the taxpayers when they failed. Here are the costs on public health and safety when they failed. These are the things that you want to avoid and these are the things that you want to try to embrace. I think New Jersey really has an opportunity to be a leader in that space, really kind of starting from the expansion of medical all the way through to building out adult use. What are we going to see if you're a consumer? You know, let's say I'm a consumer in, uh, in three years, maybe describe it for, for people how this is going to work. I think a lot of that's going to be a function of how the state builds out what the actual framework for regulations will look like. Um, I think the, as I mentioned, the model that is being created under the expansion of medical through the Murphy administration is really going to lay a strong foundation for um, the build out of the adult use system. When you're thinking about these as marketplaces in, in the advent of this industry on the illegal access side, a lot of states will begin with a medical access model. But what you have to keep in mind is that the size of the healthy population versus the ill population is, is very significantly larger. So even if you look at, look at Colorado, I think their March 2018 tax, or the March 2018 total sales was, I think, $135 million. If you look at the, the volume of sales on the adult use side versus medical, it was about 80% adult use versus medical. So you're going to start to see a diversion of those marketplaces. I think you'll, um, depending on how the model is shaped, there's a great opportunity to utilize lessons from other states in terms of what retail models are most effective in providing sufficient consumer access. I think another thing to think about in all of this is that, to Mr. Friedman's points, 
there's, there's not a lot of, of, of hard data that can demonstrate really what the effectiveness of all this has been. It is too early to really kind of take a look at that, but there's a lot of great indicators in, that, in, that demonstrate where the policy is effective and where it fails. Um, as you drive towards, towards adult use, you've you got to be thinking about cannabis as a product, as a consumer product, like any other product when you're thinking about it with respect to adult use. And what do, what do consumers of all stripes really want? They want safety of product. They want to know that it's safe for human consumption, which government-mandated testing and regulations produce. And they want to ensure that there's, there's convenience of access. No one's going to drive an hour to go to a dispensary when they can easily buy the product illegally um, if it's available. So when approaching retail access, the state needs to be thinking about that fundamental challenge. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be concerns. There's going to be stigmatized prohibitionist pushback in communities who don't understand what cannabis is and is not. Um, as Andrew mentioned, a robust uh, public outreach campaign, public edu education campaign is critical for overcoming those kinds of obstacles and providing the education necessary. But I think what you're going to see is a functioning marketplace that does provide that, that retail access and density in a safe and responsible way. My, my understanding, and one of the things I was getting at was when we talked on the phone, I, um, I had imagined medical being a totally separate deal from, from, uh, from the you know, regular marketplace. And somebody, I'm not sure if it was Bill or you, Dunstan, pointed out that not necessarily. Maybe this will be the same growers, the same retailers. Explain how that would work. I think it's... it's uh it's a little foolish to imagine the markets as, as two separate functions. Really, the purpose in bifurcating the marketplaces is really an advent, a build out of the coal memorandum that was repealed by the Justice, U.S. Justice Department in January of this year, but was initially introduced in 2014. Underneath that memo and underneath the only federal protection that exists for this industry is on the medical side. So basically, the federal government is telling states and locals, look, if you're going to build out these marketplaces, I want you to separate those marketplaces. And the reason why is because our federal government says medical is okay, but adult use isn't. So the federal government wants to very clearly and narrowly be able to identify folks who are operating independently on the adult use side versus the medical side for the sake, for the sake of prosecution. Um, in organizing the industry and you're thinking about how these businesses actually operate, you're absolutely right. It's all the same folks doing the same business. There's no difference between a medical product currently and an adult use product, unless you're talking about with respect to dosage, there might be uh, on the medical side a need for uh, larger dosage or different, different components and terpenes involved in the product that's actually given to a medical patient versus an adult use patient. But the processes um, and operators used to, to, uh, to, to manufacture and to grow those, those cannabis and cannabis products for adult use and medical consumers are all the same. And, and you're, really, you're really adhering to the same regulations for both. Ultimately, you want a product that's safe for human consumption, that's, um, that's grown and, and produced in a responsible way, and is retailed the same way. Did you have other comments you want to add, Bill? Um, how many people have been out to a legal jurisdiction? How, ma how many people have been out to visit? You brave souls for admitting that. I didn't ask you if you went in or not. Um, uh, uh, you, you joked before, it's really hard to get the legislators to come out. And, and I joked, I really tried. Um, there are a lot of legislators right now that are interested in this. There's a lot of work going on on this, and, and their focus is really to learn. So I think they are reluctant to come out. Um, shockingly, um, they, 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 this is one area where they admit they don't know everything, and uh, I guess that's good for, from a government standpoint. But I have the ability now 
to go out on some of these uh, uh, trade missions or whatever you want to call them, where we've gone out to Colorado, Nevada, and other places with governmental officials that haven't been involved in this area. And it's profound, because there's two things that I always watch for. When you walk into one of these places, it's a clean, antiseptic, new building, uh, sometimes an industrial park, rarely in a retail, you know, sort of Main Street setting, but there are those, particularly in Denver, when we were in Denver. But I watch how they walk in, they show their ID, you can go in one or two doors, uh, you're right, you know, the same companies doing medicinal and legal. If you have a medicinal card, you go on the medicinal side. If you have a legal card or you're from out of state, you go on everything else. Very professional environment when you walk in, there's glass counters, there's all sorts of products, everything under the sun you can imagine, uh, from topical creams to, you know, edibles and sodas and things of that nature, and then dry leaf. But what I watch for with these, these members and the elected officials and governmental officials is the interaction that they have with these folks behind the counter. Um, they're shocked, right? They're thinking it's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and some guy there, you know, whatever. And there's a real, you know, back and forth conversation. What brings you in? What, what are you looking for? And they're educating the customer. They're educating on usage, dosage, all of the like. Um, they're also, it's interesting to see the people behind the counter. By the way, $15 an hour uh, with benefits, with 401k sometimes. These are the retail folks. That's not even the people working in the back part of the store. They're making more. Um, but they're, they're all walks of life. We met a woman named Ruth in Nevada who was a 65-year-old uh, former chemistry teacher, retired, who decided she wanted to get back into life and be a part of something new. And she told me, and there was another woman standing next to her, I always tell the story, who was a lot younger, I'll, I'll say in her 20s, who had pink and blue hair, a nose ring, and they were, you know, simpatico together, working together, but Ruth admitted to us that she gets a lot more customers because the transient folks coming in from into Las Vegas, um, you know, uh, uh, married couple, on a vacation, in their 50s, 60s, they go to see Ruth. They don't go to see her colleague. They want to talk to Ruth because Ruth's closer to them in age. And it was just miraculous to see those experiences. But the other one, and I won't tell you who said this, but it's a pretty important person in, in state government admitted to me after a trip that, uh, that uh, we had taken, he assumed that wherever he was walking, he was gonna smell cannabis. And that was the most profound thing, that he didn't smell it once when he was out there, and however, had been in New York the weekend before and smelled it everywhere he went. And it's illegal in New York, so. Okay. Oh, sorry. I, I don't wanna... I don't wanna get into a storytelling battle because, you know, it just becomes anecdotal evidence, which isn't really evidence. Uh, when I was in Colorado and when I was in Montreal, um, there, was, there were points where I was out early in the morning going to get food, and I saw people lining up be in front of the dispensaries before they opened. And my only other, there's only two other places where I've seen lines early in the morning before a program opens. is one when people want to buy sneakers, uh, which I think is a terrible investment, and the other is uh, before, the, um, before the liquor store opens. And so the, the, line, the, line in front of the, the line in front of the marijuana dispensaries reminds me very much of the line before liquor stores. And uh, again, I, and I have, I, I mean, there are patients I saw last night uh, who are, it's, their problem is strictly marijuana. And again, I, I, I have to address some of the other things that were up here because I'm not pro-war on drugs. And in fact, everywhere I go, I'm often the contrarian. And so I do a lot of public speaking to police conventions. And I show up to police conventions, and I just last year I was a keynote at the Juvenile Justice Conference. And I got up from in a room full of 500 cops and talked about how neither DARE nor LEAD works. 
And so you can imagine how much I was loved and what the conversations were like afterwards. And so uh, I, you know, I do put myself in these situations and criminal justice reform is incredibly important to me. I, I'm currently in the process of training every CO in three different prisons as well as the therapists that work in there about better ways of doing this so we can reduce both disparities and absolutely recidivism which disproportionately affects people of color. So I think these are all issues that regardless of our stance on legalization uh, or, or decriminalization, I think all of us, and I really do believe that everyone here on the panel and many of the people in the audience, um, we, we want to see, you know, this, this really helps society. We want to address uh, a, a number of these things. And so, um, uh, but, but I, I do want to keep it very kind of data-driven rather than kind of anecdotal-driven because I think that we, we get down kind of in the weeds and we don't influence... Basically, people who are coming in here... Sorry, that was not a joke. Uh, uh, nice. Uh, and so, but what happens is then, um, basically then we're just picking the panelists to reinforce the story to reinforce what our preconceived notions were. And the reason I am the way I am is because I really am willing to listen to other people's kind of points. And, there, and there's actually a couple panels here that I want to talk to kind of afterwards to get you know, more information and, and agree with Bill's point. I think that it's, it's really important to have this really robust debate and discussion, uh, whether it's you know, coming from uh, the right or the left or the center. We get a much, much better bill this way rather than having a referendum by looking at you know, kind of all these problems. And just finally, I've been working on opioid issues for a long, long time. And uh, I, there, there are a number of issues that I've worked with the legislature, and I particularly had a lot of success working with Senator Joe Vitale, uh, who is the chair of the Health Committee for the Senate. And I've had uh, really horrible experiences with Herb Conway, who is the chair of the Assembly Health Committee, and they're both Democrats. And Bill smiling, um, so uh, perhaps you can tell me some offline stories. Uh, and. Uh, <coughs> This, that's, and again, I don't want to say, I don't want to compare it to opioids. Marijuana is not nearly as bad as opioids, so I'm not, so that's a, that's a false conversation. So I don't want anyone saying, I'd rather have someone on pot than opioids, but I don't want to, why is that the choice? And uh, we've, we've really failed in our regulation of opioids. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, prescribed, again, I don't want this to be an opioid panel, but again, that, that's something we're still really far behind that we keep working on. I spend a lot of my time angry and frustrated and then fighting the same battles that I fought a year ago or five years ago on these issues. And so it's going to be a really long-term issue, which is something that Andrew pointed out earlier. All right. One of the things I wanted to ask about is, that, you know, we haven't really talked about, I mean, Andrew pointed it out, but um, the federal government, I mean, this, the federal government, it's illegal federally. And Jeff Sessions, our attorney general, has said he is going to go after, I mean, whether he has or not, he, is, he, he has vowed to go after states that legalize this. We are already having an argument with them over immigration. Do, do we want to go down a road where we're, you know, doing, trying to legalize something that nationally is illegal? So that's a question that we've been getting a lot um, the first couple months after Jeff Sessions rescinded the Cole memo. Um, but those questions have kind of since dissipated because as people have realized, it's politically speaking, like Jeff Sessions is going to have a hard time going after states um, that have legalized cannabis. Um, so for, for one, the federal government is making a hell of a lot of money off of legal cannabis from legalized states, right? Because these businesses are still paying taxes. And marijuana businesses uh, cannot take uh, the same tax deductions as regular businesses. So they are pay paying full premium on, on, um, on their businesses. And the federal government is making all of that money. Um, <clears throat> but, but also, 
this is a states' rights issue, right? And states that are, are red states, like uh, Republican uh, lawmakers have stood up to say, no, um, if you do this, we're gonna have a problem. And include, you know, the, the leading voice um, on, in that respect has come from Colorado, um, Cory Gardner. And, um, and, and so we, we can expect that more, and we know that actually, we've heard from US attorneys across the country say that they're just going to do things the way they have been doing them you know, previously, that the Jeff Sessions decision didn't really impact um, their approach to how they were going to do their jobs in these legalized states. We can expect that going forward. And as more and more states uh, decide to legalize cannabis or decide to reform um, or, you know, their marijuana practices, it's going to continue to add pressure on the federal government. The federal government is always, is usually the you know, two steps behind all the states. Um, and so as more and more people, more and more states come on board with this decision and go live and we see that the sky hasn't fallen in Colorado nor has it fallen in California or Massachusetts or Washington, nor will it fall here in Jersey, um, I think that is going to uh, make it a little bit much harder for the federal government to say, to then like push back against states and try to, 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 to enforce the federal law. I think really, eventually, the federal, as Bill alluded to, we're gonna see some interesting things happen at the federal level and we're gonna see some marijuana reform efforts happen at the federal level. They're already starting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna mention is right now you've got a lot of shifts at the federal level. To your point, Bill, I mean, I worked in D.C. for 15 years as well, and over the course of that time, this was a laughable issue. This was not an issue that Congress was ever taking seriously, nor was the administration changing its position on. You now see both events occurring. You already have a, an annual appropriations um, amendment in place that protects medical systems. This year, you'll see amendments drive forward through annual appropriations that will also um, protect a, a, or seek to protect adult use and extend access to veterans. Uh, so those pieces are moving through Congress and we expect to see support for those this year. Uh, there'll also be an amendment that moves to the Senate side dealing with the banking issue to try to direct the U.S. Treasury Department to maintain the FinCEN guidance, which was the, basically the corollary piece to the Cole memo and that, that memo still exists today. Many of the bureaucrats who were over at Treasury were over at USDOJ and helped craft the Cole memo in FinCEN. That guidance on the Treasury side still exists today to provide guidance to financial institutions who, uh, to Mr. Friedman's points, are providing the haft banked solution to the cannabis industry on the banking side. So there's a lot of changing attitudes in the federal government. I really think as we look to the new congressional session that begins in 2019, you're gonna see significant reforms there. I really think that you're looking at this next congressional session being the session in which they really truly deliberate on whether to reschedule or deschedule. Okay. Um, I, I, we'd like to open this up to your questions. It shouldn't all be dominated by me. If you could just write down some questions and hand it to people. And I'd like Andrew to come up and um, join us. If, you, if we can just move over. Um, for the New Jersey people, what, uh, the banking issue. I mean, we we're also talking about a private bank here in New Jersey. Um, but if that doesn't fly, I mean, isn't this a big problem? I mean, do you, what do you anticipate? Um, it's changing. I mean, I, I don't, you know, the, the governor um, in the campaign floated this idea of the state bank. Um, I, I don't know what we'll do with that. I mean, there's been some policy discussions going on, you know, big picture politics. 
you potentially put a target on the state at the federal level by, you know, putting all of our cannabis revenue uh, derived into one state bank. Um, you know, again, the partisan nonsense going on back and forth. But there is banking going on, and there's, there's banking going on around the country. There's banking that potentially could go on here. There's actually some banks here in New Jersey right now that are already involved in the cannabis space. Um, there are credit unions, and there, there are opportunities. And I think that view is changing. Um, I know the, the head of the New, Jer New Jersey Bankers Association a couple years ago when we first started in this was not so keen on this effort. Um, I think his members now have been educating themselves. I participated with some, thing, uh, some things with their group, and I think they're becoming more interested in this. So I, I see banking to be a part of it. I think the problem right now is because of the federal prohibitions, there are some concerns, there are some impediments, um, and I think you'll see more, I think some of the bigger banks are staying away from this right now. I, no, 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 I don't have an answer. I have just two questions that I'd like other panelists to answer. Sure. They're not like, they're not like nasty, super oppositional. Just, I <laughs> 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 I'm not going to make you uh, write them out. You want to ask one of them, Frank, and then? Well, let me just follow up on banking right. real quick. To Bill's point, yeah, there's, there's already a fair amount of banking that's going on, and there's some unique approaches to it. Of course, you've got credit unions that are involved. The, the, the real issue is while you have guidance issued at the federal level for for financial institutions to adhere to if they're going to do business with, with the cannabis industry, it's very, very onerous regulatory guidance. Um, to Andrew's point when he spoke earlier, if you are banking businesses in this industry, you do have to submit a report to Treasury every 90 days, a suspicious activities report, again, telling the federal government, hey, remember us, we're that credit union that's doing business with all those cannabis companies, so here's all your stuff and we'll see you in 90 days. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're constantly doing that for every one of your cannabis clients and you're basically training them to be de facto, your cannabis clients to be de facto regulators so they can, they can kind of get it right each time. Um, so that's one piece. Um, I do think that there will be a lot of reforms on the banking side. As I mentioned, there's a, an amendment that will move through Congress this year that will seek to, to fix that piece. Um, in the meantime, states are coming up with their own schemes to try to get the industry to bank. Washington State, for example, was very, very aggressive in what it told the industry. It basically told the industry, either prove to the state of Washington that you can't get a bank account um, or, 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 and we'll help you if you can't, um, or, or just kind of basically figure something out. Um, and, at, and after the state of Washington brought that guidance through at this point, I think it brought about 90% of its cannabis clients into some kind of banking framework um, that touches the federal wire. Do you want anything on? Yeah, I would just say, um, uh, please don't go the private bank route uh, for, for on the state level. I, I think there's there, there are plenty of fintech solutions and uh, credit unions and community banks that will get in this. I also think the federal government this is the most likely piece of legislation to make it through the federal government side. Uh, and at that point, you will have gone through a lot of heartache uh, on the state side. Um, well, our governor wants to have a private bank separate and above this marijuana ah, thing. Well, so okay. that's a, it's a, that's it's a, a whole nother question. story, yeah. but it's one of the arguments for the private bank. Um, it, what? Oh, Frank, that's what I forgot. Go so, ahead, Frank. So one of the questions, Andrew, you mentioned about uh, that it's, since it's an agricultural product, the, the price is going to go down, the margins are going to go down. So if, that's, if, that, if that is the case, uh, how does that affect the businesses then advocating for a lower tax rate eventually? 
Like at some point they're paying a high tax rate, they're gonna go down. And let me, and I'm, I'm gonna give it to you. And then my second question is, what are, and I, cause I know there's a couple lawyers here on the panel. What about strict, li what about liability laws or strict liability laws as far as for the people who prescribe it or the companies that sell it? Let's say there is a negative reaction. Where, where, how do we create the, the what does is, what is the legislation look like then? Like, do they get a marijuana shield law where if you create, if you grow marijuana, if you sell marijuana, if you, if you recommend marijuana, if eventually you prescribe marijuana, can you be sued? Or is it just says, no, buyer be, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. So those are, those are just my two questions. And I, I'm more interested in the, the liability issue, but I am interested in them fighting about taxes. I think on liability, it's going to be, I mean, again, we've got this weird situation where it, it is in violation of federal law and it will be uh, upheld at the state level. I mean, for example, if um, you can't get insurance on product inside your, um, your facility, so if you lose your crop because of uh, a failed grow or a fire or something like that, you lose your, so there are some impediments, in, but in, on liability issues, I think it's going to depend. Um, I, I don't think there, I don't see in statute any blanket liability for anybody on this. Um, I think it's going to depend on, you know, frankly, the, what what your act was. You know, and you're you're going to. I mean, for example, if it's a slip and fall on your property, that's a whole other conversation. If it's about, hey, I use this product, and you know, it burned me because it was it wasn't what it was supposed to be. That's a different conversation. Now, if somebody took product and got behind the wheel of a car and was involved in a car accident. By the way, we haven't talked about all that yet. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. assuming that's gonna come up in questions. Um, you know, there are some questions, but there's similar questions about you know, what a bar's liability would be, what a liquor store's liability would be, what a doctor's prescribing liability. So in the law, the one thing I've learned about this, and Andrew, you might be the perfect person to talk about this, is this isn't really novel law. We have the ability to apply this law to a variety of other existing laws. The novelty is the fact that it's in violation of federal law. So, I feel pretty comfortable, even on the strict liability question, there's a framework of laws that exist, but there will be new areas of law. There might be new cases that will be tried on nuanced issues. Does that make sense? Uh, first on the liability, uh, you're right, most of them actually fall in different buckets. Uh, that liability law normally doesn't follow a product, but follows the type of accident that you're talking about. What is interesting about it is actually the insurances available for those liabilities are actually much harder and they're generally sold on the secondary market. So they're, they're pretty expensive uh, to get insured against them, uh, which ultimately goes you know, to the person having the accident or whatever. Uh, um, uh, because it's harder as a marijuana-related business to get uh, the proper insurance, there's kind of no deep pockets to sue at the end of the day. And so uh, that is an issue at the end of the day, the, the, the lack of access to uh, proper insurance uh, uh, products um, is, will ultimately hurt people. Uh, the, on the tax revenue side, um, uh, taxes are, the way to tax this is a very open debate, but I would say that uh, New Jersey would do well to leave itself open to a lot of different levers for taxation and types of taxation, because we truly don't know the econ what the economics of this are gonna do, right? There's, um, it could go any which way, which is it remains small grows and the price margin remains high and, uh, and a value added tax at the end of the day is perfectly fine, or it could be that it's pennies on the dollar for uh, marijuana now, and so in order to keep the price at a reasonable level, you're going to have to do uh, a THC-related tax. And and I would say the dynamic I would look out for is how do you make sure you still have 
the ability to remain uh, um, kind of enough distance from industry that it's not impossible to raise or change tax tactics five to ten years down the road. And, and writing that flexibility into your law now uh, will help you down the road when industry will be more powerful. Uh, no, actually, we managed to raise our tax rate a year and a half ago um, from, uh, this was our excise tax, which, so we tax at many different levels because we like to make things confusing, uh, but uh, we raised one of our taxes from 10 to 15%, even though that was supposed to go from 10 to 8%. Um, and so, uh, it, right now, they're, they're fine. Uh, and um, the other part of the... The side of that is, is in the long run, actually, for a lot of these people, a high tax rate is a barrier to entry. And so it actually it behooves industry in a lot of ways to have a high tax rate, which I know sounds weird, but that actually is, is the case um, uh, because the, only so much product is going to be sold. So all that is to say, uh, remain flexible, be able to swivel real quickly, and, and be able to beat back industry when it happens. I was actually um, surprised at the question because in the in the two bills that we have, we have them going up every year, um, and by the fifth year, being up to twenty five percent. So serious, it gets to be serious money then. Well, and I, I would <laughs> say, by the way, the economic modeling of that is correct, right? You want a low tax rate at the beginning, be able to start up industries uh, to the extent to which you need that, which is only a small part of the problem with beating out the black market, but. Uh, the first two to three years, you realize economies of scale, you get branding, you get testing, so it's a safer product. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen in the first two years to beat out the black market, uh, but having a to low tax rate also helps at the beginning for that. I've got a lot of questions. I do want to talk about the driving thing, but I have a lot of questions here that relate to, well, actually, first, um, Who's going to monitor all this? Who's going to, isn't this, you know, I mean, who's going to manage all this? Is this going to be local government? Is it going to be, what's going to happen with your, your local cops? Your, uh, you know, who's going to decide what, what's proper and improper? Yeah, it sounds like you need a marijuana czar. Um, <laughs> I, 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 think, I think we'll probably have one. We already have a gun czar, but anyway. So, no, it is a place that needs a lot of executive leadership at the, at the front end. And actually, where you don't see executive leadership, uh, in, I would say California's having a tough problem with it right now. And I think a lot of that is because the governor really doesn't want this to be part of his legacy. And so I think it'll take towards the next governor uh, to figure out how, how this is going to be implemented more. Uh, it really does take governors and mayors being very invested in seeing this through because I will tell you there's 10 departments in Colorado that have direct oversight of some part of really? the regulation, the public health or public safety aspects of uh, legalization. The main one is the Department of Revenue, and that's where liquor is handled. But that's the nuts and bolts of licensing and seed to sale tracking. It's not your public education campaigns. It's not what are you doing about driving while high. It's not uh, social uh, equity programs. All of those things span, uh, you know, where are you going to get legal access to water? That's the Department of Agriculture. How are you going to regulate pesticides? So that's the Department of Agriculture, in, uh, at least in, in Colorado. Um, that all is going to take governor's office push over and over and over again uh, in, a, in a cabinet level position to, to get it done. Cabinet level, so yeah. yeah. Um, just two things real quick. First of all, that's not uncommon with what we have in a lot of industries here already in New Jersey that have nothing to do with cannabis. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. One of my clients, I'm involved in a new healthcare facility that's being built in a town and we're working with the town engineer 
We're working with the mayor's office. We're working with the town planning board, all levels of local government. Um, we're working with the county engineer. We're working with the county planning board. Uh, we're working with a adjacent utility companies that have to have sign off on easements. We're working with the state DOT, the state DEP. We're working with the Department of Community Affairs that has jurisdiction over the, ultimately the client's gonna work with the Department of Health, perhaps the Department of Banking and Insurance, and maybe the Department of Human Services. Um, they also work on a routine basis once the facility's open with local law enforcement coordinating uh, issues that go back and forth for care. So there's a lot of overlap already, and Jersey's kind of used to multi, 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 multi layers of government on top of a government. Now, the one cool oh, thing I'll good. say, and I, this is a great audience, and you said this before, Dustin and others have said, this is the place you can really geek out and talk about this stuff, because Spotlight dives in deep to these things. I, I, I got to see something really special when we were out in Colorado. Local town engineer, local company engineer for a processing facility, get together in a room, because I said, how do you guys design this? How do you put the code together? How do you know that this facility should be uh, compliant with Denver's code, okay? And the, uh, and the answer was, our town engineers got together with the company's engineers, and we all sat together and designed what we thought should be in this alcohol extraction room. And we used uh, examples from other industries that they have already regulated, we looked at other best practices in other places, and together we got to this place. And that seems to be the model in Colorado that the industry and the regulators have come together together, and I'm, I'm looking at some of my friends out here who are shaking their head, that doesn't happen, come together and cooperatively worked. And you mentioned the issue that came up with overdosing. The industry voluntarily came back together and said, what do we need to do? We'll segment, we'll stamp, we'll, we'll package accordingly, we'll advertise. There's been this symbiotic relationship, so that I think helps significantly, and I see that happening here in Jersey as well. Um, I think, it, well, we have 565 towns here, and that's a, a little different from, I'm sure, any state, right. so. And, and each of those towns is gonna have a say in their own zoning laws. They're gonna be able to, to um, enact you know, rules and regulations that deal with the time, place, and manner in which these businesses operate. That, especially in a state like New Jersey that's you know, obsessed with home rule, that's not gonna change. Excessive so even though we'll have regulatory agencies at the state level uh, dictating um, and imposing some regulations on, on various aspects of the legalization market, um, the, the, the cities will have a tremendous amount of control over what happens in their town too. But I've got a number of questions here that really go into, that really drive at the point of st standardization. Um, you know, how are you going to standardize how the police force deals with things? How are you going to standardize, you know, how doctors, even with the medical thing, um, deal with things? How are you going to standardize the, the uh, training, the processing? What, you know, when we get to the, I know I've talked to a couple of you about, well, you know, we already have alcohol, but those are national brands. Those are national things. I mean, how are we going to deal with any of that? Um, so I, I can speak to uh, very briefly on the policing aspect. Um, we have a state attorney general <laughs> who is the uh, head law enforcement officer uh, for the entire state. So the AG's office issues guidelines and directives that dictate what all of our departments across the state do. Um, and so there, we can have the AG can 
implement uniform uh, rules that relate to how police officers should handle uh, marijuana possession um, or other marijuana offenses, data collection. We have a huge data collection problem here in New Jersey, actually, when it comes to marijuana, because we have not, while we have been able to do an analysis of the racial disparities for marijuana arrests for blacks and whites, we haven't been able to do a statewide analysis for Latinos. And that's because our cities are not properly documenting ethnicity. Um, and so uh, what they, the ACLU did uh, a report on marijuana arrests um, that we issued last year. And be, if our police departments aren't uniformly collecting information about who they're stopping and why they're stopping, it becomes hard to, uh, to tackle these racial disparity issues. Um, the AG's office can dictate you know, better data collection as well. So there's a number of things on the policing level and police training that we can do at the state level to have uniform practices across the state. I'm a huge fan of our current attorney general, and um, I've, I've worked with previous attorney generals and talked to them about, and, and the county prosecutors don't always listen to what the attorney general says, even though if the attorney general gives them directions. And there's been a number of, state, a number of townships uh, that their county prosecutors have told them about the Overdose Prevention Act and arrests and other things, and the police chief and the local police chiefs did not follow the directives. And so they're still, ideally, yes, it's set up for the attorney generals to go to the county prosecutors, the police chiefs, but that still doesn't happen. And so, where in theory, there's the idea of uniformity, but my experience with this is that that will that will not play out. That doesn't mean we don't you don't do it. You don't issue the guidelines, but it doesn't mean they're going to be followed. I think you raise a lot of key points there in both of what you said. I think one of the, you're right. Absolutely, one of the one of the missing key missing ingredients after these systems are laid down is, or and even while they're being implemented, is there's. There's a lapse in code enforcement and public safety enforcement during this period um, as the industry organizes and, and migrates to regulatory compliance. Um, and, and so there's, there, there, needs, there, there ought to be more resources driven tor towards that implementation on the code enforcement and law enforcement side. Um, and, and not even think, and thinking about it as kind of a two-part job. One, you're going in to absolutely ensure that there's businesses that are migrating into the legal system that you can ensure compliance from through the standardization on that piece, I think for the standardization, you're really relying on a two-part structure that already exists in New Jersey, where you've got the state legislature and regulators that are that are designed to be organizing um, processes of uniformity to regulate all kinds of other industries that exist across New Jersey, and then you've got local control to actually take a look at how local markets ought to be tailored pertaining to that particular industry. That model exists and should definitely be utilized as New Jersey drives forward on this process. Um, but you know, getting back to the metric side of it, and to, to Andrew's points, there's a lot of metrics that are being captured currently by the federal government, by other state governments, pertaining to drug use as a whole, as kind of an umbrella cap category, but there is not enough attention paying, being paid to each one of these unique um, data verticals pertaining exactly to cannabis. And so the state should be thinking about organizing those to ensure that whatever standardization model it does create um, can be flexible and modified going forward and responsive to that data. Is it, is it going to be standardized in, uh, or will there be training from other states to, uh, to deal with some of these issues, to Andrew? Yeah, uh, we've been involved in done data gap analyses um, 
both in what data streams should exist and how the collection streams go for that uh, and the reliability of it in three different states at this point. And it is an important part of getting, We, you know, in Colorado, we had our own data team that just met constantly. We put out a data report that I would say is bar none the best data report. Our one problem is we don't push it out. I wish we pushed it out like some other agencies push out their data reports. But um, uh, there's obviously a limit to what data is going to do in the, in the short term. and, and this is not a problem unique to, to cannabis. The uh, data is a tough thing. Governance is a tough thing. The, the, the opportunity is this is a fresh take on a lot of different systems. And if you use it uh, to do that fresh take, and, and there's some problems you're going to be able to help fix. And there's other ones that maybe all you're going to be able to do is label it as a, a shortcoming of that data stream. Uh, you know, this is not uniformly connect, collected through, through different counties. And so we're going to have to look at this county and this county and this county separately. Um, all of that is to say, this is not, this does not grow up in a utopia. There will be the consistent challenges that exist, whether that's social equity problems, uh, government bureaucracy problems, uh, all of those are going to show up again inside the, the governance of, of cannabis. Uh, what's kind of fun about it is we haven't had a chance to have a new take on how you handle those things in like 200 years. And so... Uh, the more creative, especially your executives get about how you handle the governance of this, uh, the more you can actually probably learn things that you can then apply to other industries, like negotiated rulemaking, where you bring uh, the industry to the table, but you also bring public health specialists and public safety specialists, and you make sure that all these things are happening in a transparent way. Uh, there's some, I mean, from a good government nerd perspective, there's some cool things that can happen. <sighs> Um, another question we have here is how uh, how are we going to cite this? I mean, that's I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but how are we going to ensure, from a social justice perspective, from a fairness perspective, that we're going to have enough of these uh, the retailers that they're going to be distributed? There's a lot of NIMBY issues um, going to happen. Uh, that there are enough, you know, that we're going to have. Uh, that it's not going to be a completely white industry. How can we ensure that? Who's answering? No one wants <laughs> this. Bill, Bill can answer, unless Diana wants it. So um, I'll start, and then I'll, I'll pass it over to, to Bill. Um, so for, for us, uh, we see that the, the first step in making sure that uh, we do have a diverse pool of applicants for the jobs and the business ownership is uh, creating an equity program. Um, and afterwards, I'd love to talk more with, with Andrew about his uh, thoughts about the limitations of so those programs. Um, but uh, we, we need to, up until November 2016, the jurisdictions that had legalized cannabis were overwhelmingly white. Right? And then November, California got on board with legalization, uh, which is a, a really populous state and a diverse state. New Jersey, also very diverse state. So we have an opportunity to really make sure that, um, that, that the cannabis industry that we are building in the Garden State reflects the diversity of the Garden State. Um, and that is something that we are hoping to, to build into our program here. Um, but it also comes with you know, making sure that the licensing fees aren't, too, aren't so high, making sure that you aren't boxing people out of economic opportunities based on criminal conviction. Um, and, and caps on the number of licenses is also uh, going to be key to that. Because if you have a very limited number of licenses that are available from the outset, those licenses are going to go really quickly. 
um, and unless you put in uh, measure, unless you put measures in place, they're going to more likely than not go to the highest bidders, um, who are going to be most likely white, most likely affluent, um, and uh, out of, oftentimes from out of state. Um, so we want to build an industry here in New Jersey that actually gives a chance for New Jerseyans, everyday New Jerseyans, to, um, to get involved in um, building the industry that they are actually helping to shape. They should have a fair shot at that. And, I, and, and in the two, um, again, in the, in the Stroman bills, they have that built in, but it also raises the question, you know, do you want, uh, wouldn't you rather have a, um, somebody from out of state that's already done this? Do it, you know. This is kind yeah. of a yes and no, and 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 I think that there's a marriage here. I mean, first of all, the one thing we didn't talk about are the licensing licenses that are available. Right now in New Jersey, we have six. I guess now we have six operating uh, medical dispensaries. Um, so they're 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 uh, they're organized in what's called a vertically integrated operation. Everything under one roof. They grow, they process, they sell. That's the whole model for their business. Um, the exploration going on right now, by the way, we test at a state level. We have a, a state lab that tests. And again, there's only six, so there's not really a bottleneck, although there kind of is. So a couple things going on. You, you mentioned the, how many of these. I, the state will put some cap at some point on the retail and the, the grow and the processing and other licenses I'll talk about in a second. but. Where they, ride, where they come up is going to, a lot, a lot will depend on land. And so there's another area where I say, even if you're not touching the plant, you can be involved in this. If you're a landowner, um, if you have property in one of these jurisdictions and you have a relationship with your town, and if you are a, a minority, if you are a white person, whatever, if you're American Indian, if you have a relationship in your town, you're a Jersey person, you're, you're, a, you're a Hamilton person, you've got some clout that the person sitting in Colorado doesn't have. There's likelihood that some you know, big cannabis person in Colorado would like to find you and partner with you, and all of a sudden, guess what? You're in business together. And maybe you're not necessarily rooted in the full, full business. Maybe you're just the real estate owner. Maybe you're the, maybe you're the leaseur. Um, but there's a variety of different models that can be created here. Aren't just, hey, let's just jump into the business and be pot entrepreneurs. There, there's, a, there's multiple different places. I, additionally, from the licensure side, we're gonna have lab licenses that are gonna be available for private lab testing now. Um, I, I think that's what's being contemplated on our bill. We just won't have the, 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 the volume to deal with lab testing at the state level for this. You're going to have potentially, we talked about consumption spaces. We're not exactly sure what that's gonna look like, but this tasting room idea has some merit to it. Um, we're also talking about home delivery licenses. There's a conversation going on about that, which is akin to the Uber and Lyft conversations that were going on here a couple years ago. So there's a variety of different applications, licenses that we can catch a lot of people in. And then remember, I talked to a guy the other day, I know you don't want to deal with anecdotals, but I'm gonna just mention this one, who was adamantly opposed to cannabis legalization because of the impact it would have on his workforce. So I said to him, what do you do? He goes, we're in a very specific packaging business. We do high-end packaging for electronics and for some types of other end users. I said, well, what does that mean? He's like, we make Ziploc bags. I said, oh, okay. And, and they're childproof in some respects because they're, they're very high-end for these electronics and other applications. And I said to him, really? I said, who do you think these guys are gonna buy their product from when they come here? And he looked at me and he goes, well, 
don't they bring their own, you know? I go, no, 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 I go, somebody's gonna build a business here and they're gonna have, you know, some government mandate, they have to put some safety around this, some type, type of packaging. Do you do spec packaging? Oh yeah, all the time. So if they came to you and said, we want a bag that looks like this with a zipper on it, you could do it? Sure. I said to him, do you realize you have a new client base? His views change by the end of our conversation. So, um, all right, but that's that. You know, that's somebody's self-interest. But I have a sure. question here that, that that raises what it does happen to the workforce and what uh, what kind of laws have to be changed. Are there unending laws that have to be changed um, to accommodate this? Yeah, workforce. Uh, I'm going to a lot of conferences now about people uh, worried about their workforce. Um, you know, the first thing, and in, in most HR people come back with this, marijuana in the workforce is nothing new. So there's a lot of it that 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 does not change, and uh, and most of most of the laws about that are about spot, spotting somebody intoxicated rather than having used marijuana. Now, marijuana and intoxication tests, uh, again, pretty boring, but like really important. We don't have a good intoxication test for marijuana, and so that part of it is hard, but that part of that is, is hard today. Uh, and so um, there's a few issues. Uh, I would say, and uh, this is not, well, this is anecdotal, but it's, this is anecdotal having talked to CEOs of major corporations. Um, uh, the, the real problem is uh, both high-end and mid-recruitment out of college uh, or, or community college um, because uh, there's an atmosphere, party atmosphere, I've been smoking. I didn't realize that there was an opening drug test coming into my aerospace uh, job. Uh, they, of course, are, are a drug-free workplace, so it's a urinalysis and hair test, and that goes far enough back where I'm screwed. And they say, yeah, they're, they're losing twice as many as they used to lose uh, before. Now that's like, it went from like 15% to 30% of people failing the initial uh, drug tests. Um, then once they're in there, the retention rate is almost exactly the same. So once people know that it's part of the rules or laws, they love their job. They don't, they're not gonna do things to jeopardize their job. Uh, so it does speak to a need for a very specific micro-targeted uh, education campaign that these tests exist before you, uh, you go in for uh, you know, in the last couple of months of college, you should probably sm start stop smoking <laughs> pot uh, because you're gonna have to take a, a, a pee test. And, uh, that, that, it sounds silly, but like that's enough information that it would probably reverse that problem. Uh, it's just, it, it's just not, I mean, it, that takes a level of uh, fine tuning your system through Best the way. Advice we make it today. Yeah, there we go. Well, let me add something in too. I, I think another, another issue, and I don't know if you wanted to touch on this as well, is, is actually cannabis consumption in the workplace. Certainly you've got people who are coming to work who are utilizing prescription drugs to treat a, a whole host of ailments. Um, you'll have the same with cannabis consumers. And so in California, for example, there's a pretty heated debate about what to do with employees who are medical patients who are utilizing cannabis for a health condition and for, for that health condition are required to take cannabis at routine times throughout the day, including while they're at work and what should be done with them. You've got chambers of commerce coming out opposing uh, efforts to try to enable patients to be able to consume at work. So there's still a lot of challenges there. And I don't know, Andrew, if you've seen anything on that front. I mean, Colorado fell on a pretty bright line and went all the way up to the Supreme Court that says employers have the same rights that they did before legalization. Um, 
I, and this won't be a popular view with some people, the panelists. I think for right now that has to be the case um, because this is nationally illegal and you want to have access to uh, federal funds kind of across the way. And, and the, the second you start making that in this particular legal environment right now, this, the second you start making uh, uh, that nebulous, you're going to have some real big HR problems really fast um, that I, I just don't think uh, is worth it. That being said, I think there can be conversations that say, um, is there a space for this? Not that you're required to have a space for this, but you want those, those people to be able to be um, at their best during work. And if that requires uh, on-site medication, then what, what do you do? And that can be an individual conversation between an employer and employee. I, I don't think it's the right place for state law to intervene at this point. We got to wrap up, but um, I, there are a couple of things that we really didn't address, and one of which is you did address a minute, and you've, it was raised the driving problem. I mean, we don't have a test; there is no breathalyzer. So, how do police? I mean, given the fact that we have an increase in fatalities, we don't know what it is, but what, why it is, but we also know that there is there will be impairment in driving. Um, uh, this is a big concern of a lot of people. Why, why are we going to put people, allow more people that are high on the highway and will not be able to stop them? We have people that are high on the highway now. And we have people that are high on the highway that are not high on alcohol right now that are driving. And we are getting them off the roads. Um, if, if I use Benadryl this morning and I'm not fit to drive under the influence because it has that effect on me, I'm under the influence. That's actually a legal drug, right? I mean, you can go buy Benadryl in the CVS today. Um, there are trained, in fact, Jersey has the most drug recognition experts in any state in the country right now. Um, we have trained law enforcement personnel that will uh, be able to identify these, and we'll have to train more. In fact, the Attorney General right now has just announced they've been training more drug recognition experts. That has a cost associated with it that should come out of marijuana legalization money. Um, this is not a new concept, by the way. We're, we have the privilege of working with um, former state trooper, now retired, Nick Bucci from uh, Law, Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And uh, Nick's in his 70s. I just doubted him. I don't want to tell him that. But he will tell you the stories of that. You know, they before breathalyzers, and they would pull somebody over, and they would do, you know, uh, field sobriety tests. They would drug recognition experts. Now, the question then becomes of not keeping people safe and getting them off the road. The question then becomes in terms of prosecution, enforcement, all the like, right? Because you get them off the road. You can arrest them. The, the officer can remove them. That's not really the bigger concern. It's, I think the prosecutor then goes, well, now what do I do with them, right? And so there's some hobbled together, you know, the, the, the drug recognition expert pulling them off the road, coupled with a blood test that blows positive or, uh, or is positive for some THC in the system. That's not scientific. That's probably capturing more people than we'd like, but it's a dual test at this point that I think is the only thing until we get to a real breathalyzer. The, uh, I, I think the, the, this, this question brings up why I'm in favor of decriminalization rather legalization is that we can address some of these issues now, particularly on the social justice matters. Diane and I are gonna disagree on how far that goes, but it's still a stepping stone. And I, I just really, again, my push is what's the wait? And I know Bill's point is we can, you know, New Jersey, we can get ahead of it and we can be the model state. I don't, I disagree with the idea that the model, New Jersey being the model state for marijuana is enough to jump ahead of the data that's coming in 
And I just strongly urge again, let's wait for Colorado to tease us out for another five years. Let's wait for California to tease us out for another five years so we can really make good decisions and copy best practices because there are some things we're really working in the dark and a lot of the other panelists here will admit there's just, there's just things we just don't know and this, and this is one of them. And so I'm, I'm not saying never do it ever and everyone that smokes marijuana is terrible. I don't want that to be the New Jersey Spotlight headline, uh, you know, anything like that. I'm just, I'm just cautioning patience and just let's be deliberative. The only thing I'll add to this conversation is this is such an important place for a public education campaign and maybe a little bit of advocate shaming. If you go to like the normal website right now, most of the messaging is it's not all that dangerous to drive while high. And I think that's the wrong message to be putting out there and it's uh, a message people actually really believe. And the, the evidence is overwhelming. It is a problem to, to be high and, and uh, and drive. Uh, there are some studies that's, that like will show like, hey, these three people had a hit and they were slightly better at driving afterwards. And it's like, that is, that is not evidence. That is, that's not anything, really. Um, and um, uh, the, the rumors around being a safer driver, uh, um, because you go slower on the highway, it does not make you a safe driver. That is actually really bad. Um, and uh, uh, people, it, it's just an unbelievable myth that is implanted. And so figuring out how to get that message out, which by the way, is not a public education campaign wagging your finger at, pe at drivers who drive high because they just won't listen to you, but figuring out how to get a public education campaign where people have to admit that they put other people's lives in danger when they smoke and drive uh, is absolutely paramount. Okay. I'd like to ask like 10 or 20 more questions, but I, I th we, we said we'd get out of here at 11, 11 and it's after 11 now. So oh, wait, wait, uh, Diana has something she wants to ask. Just, just very, very briefly. Uh, there's something that, that Frank mentioned that I really want to lift up. And that is that we as a state need much broader criminal justice reform measures. Our legislature has tried to uh, to, to be progressive and pass uh, progressive criminal justice reform initiatives that were vetoed by Governor Christie. Um, we hope to see those measures uh, you know, re restored and revamped uh, again with a new sympathetic governor in place. But this is, for, for us, marijuana legalization is not the panacea, right? It doesn't fix systemic racial racism. It doesn't fix discriminatory policing, um, but it is part of this much broader criminal justice cr police reform measures that we need all across our state and all across our country. And uh, so thank you, Frank, for, for raising that. And I just want to uh, make sure I lift that up, um, that this is one piece of a much larger puzzle that we all need to continue fighting. Well, I'd like to thank the panel. I think they did a great job. And if you have any specific questions, and then we will be putting this up on our site. We will be doing a story on this. You can forward um, questions to me. I'll try to, uh, they, they may have their um, individual uh, information on the site, on their, on the slides, certainly Andrew, but I would be happy to forward specific questions after the event. Thank you, thank you. A couple quick things. Um, there are surveys on your tables, which um, very helpful if you can fill those out and, and just leave them on the tables. We'll collect them. We are also um, going to be posting early next week a podcast of this event, which uh, you obviously can share with others who weren't able to be here. Um, and again, thank you and thank Lee uh, for as a moderator and travel safe. 
We hope you enjoyed this program from NJ Spotlight. If you have comments or suggestions about the program, you can write to info at njspotlight.com. We produce this program in the studios of statebroadcastnews.com, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thanks for joining us, and take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.